Alright, this is it. We are, we are, we are, my face is, is emerging from some molten lava, as if I'm being made for the first time every episode. How, how you boys doing? It's showtime. I'm not pretty good. <laughs> I'm really amazed at your restraint not to kick off this big O episode by yelling showtime. I really, I- y- you are, a, you are a more... Uh, like uh, resolute host than I am because I feel like that's all I can do now. My partner is probably going to get mad at me soon for I'm just walking be, around the house yelling "Showtime!" I, I so for me the reason I didn't is just because I'm going to be uh, uh, a an annoying pedant about it later uh, when when I'm discussing the, the some of the choices made in the script. But you know that that's 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 maybe why. I mean my my initial thought honestly was to uh, open the show like I'm a creep answering the phone. Which is how Big O likes to cap off its episode. <laughs> Dorothy! Dorothy! And just like, no, I don't like that. Please don't. <laughs> the, the, the only good Kids React video I ever watched on YouTube was Kids React to Rotary Telephones. Oh, yeah, that is very good. That which is, is good content. Very I thought you were going to say Kids React to Big O. I'd love to see that video. <laughs> I definitely have thoughts in regards to that, too. It's insane. Well, we covered Sorry. that in our, in our history episode, though, because apparently kids love Big O. Well, kids well, today, though. And also, I would like to see an actual kid reaction to Big O oh, circa 2001. Stephen Hero, like, I... Uh, this is why I would love to have this conversation today as we discuss these episodes, because, like, this is why learning that it started as an action figure was so insane to me, because, like, this is not... Uh, I know this is reductive. This is not a show for kids. <laughs> like, I don't know at all how a kid is supposed to be entertained watching this very, very good show. Let me let me not, you know, let's... Uh, we're not in the episode discussion yet, but, like, man, it it, it is slow. It is a slow show, but anyway... Yeah, on that, no- of- on that note, I did start reading the manga. I'm, like, um, maybe halfway through the first Tonkabon. And that is more like Big O geared to kids. That's a very like Saturday morning version of Big O. Like a lot of slapstick so humor. I'm gonna I'm gonna post some uh, screenshots, not screenshots, but like pictures from the manga. Even in the design, the characters are a lot softer. There's a lot more gags. The Viz translations all over the place. But outside of that, um, it's an interesting counterpart to the TV show. Yeah, I'll talk more about def- that later. I mean, it, it being, I feel like there's more genre malleability when you're not having to represent stuff in, in the way that, that anime has to. Like, so much of what I think is memorable about, uh, I almost said Code Geass. That's not right. <laughs> That's not the right show at all. Not quite I don't yet. know where that came from. Um, the, the thing about Big O in, in this regard is that so much about what's memorable about it is is mood and atmosphere. Mm. But, you know... Uh, before we, we really jump into that, uh, I guess I almost wanted to call it Sweaty City. It looks sweaty in Paradigm City. I don't know why, but uh, the, was there anything not anime or, or mech related that you guys wanted to chat about before we really jump in? I finished Last of Us. Oh, did you like it? Um, all right, I have a few thoughts. The problem is, if I start saying my thoughts about Last of Us, and now that this is a bad thing, it's going to sound like I'm parroting the negative reviews from The Last of Us Part 2. <laughs> Um, because you mentioned you didn't like the ending, and I didn't really... All right, so I'm... Okay. Uh, spoilers well, for Last of Us. Let me just jump in real quick. Let's walk our way through the Last of Us ending. B- before we talk about... I mean, I just want to clarify. I, I, I didn't dislike the ending. I just had a hard time discussing it without getting... Obviously, without getting into what what happens in it. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, my main issue is I think the game... It, 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 the game very much, even outside of marketing and fan reaction, postures itself to saying, like, I have... Um, I'm using the first person here to refer to the the game, but like I have something important to say, and the game really doesn't. 
Like thematically, it's a very simple story. And at the end, when you're Joel and you're, I mean, when I had to murder the doctors, that I had a real falling off point at that point towards the end of the game because you're basically you're. I had a lot of Ludo narrative, Ludo, what is it? Ludo narrative dissonance. Ludo narrative dissonance. <laughs> I hate using that term, especially in regard to uh, the culture surrounding it, but it very much applies here. I mean, I was very much on board with the relationship between Joel and Ellie um, for maybe 90% of the game. But at the end, I know this is not an original thought, but I very much viewed Joel as the villain, and which maybe was the point, but you, the game had very little to say about that. Um, I'm trying to go through the ending in my head again and uh, grab some salient points. But yeah, there is I mean, one scene at the end with, all right, so you just mow down a bunch of fireflies, which are basically the closest you're going to get to the good guys in this very effed up world. You can't take the sky from me. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. And um, so you mowed all of them down. You killed those innocent doctors. I mean, as yeah, innocent as doctors. I'm sure they are. I was so pissed I, mean, I had to sorry. do that. I, I know. I, I, the game just thinks it's much cleverer than it actually is. And yeah. then once you get to the end, there's a scene where Ellie is very disconcerted about Joel. And then this what was a very natural relationship between them now is a very forced relationship, almost as if Joel wants to keep Ellie in stasis. Basically, he wants him to be the daughter he's lost, but he wants to lock, him, lock her in this role that she is increasingly uncomfortable with. And that made me uncomfortable as a player, which is fine. It's fine if a game makes me uncomfortable. But the problem is the game had really nothing to say. And it very much postures itself as a game that has something meaningful to say. And when it gets right down to it, it is a very classic zombie apocalypse quote-unquote theme. Is just that there really are the only hard truth about this world is that people are going to rip each other apart. And then you should try to do right by the ones you love. Which, that thematic message, I, I play the, the DLC right after. The DLC was fucking phenomenal. The DLC runs circles around the base game. Did you play that, Ignis? I know PMC did. He mentioned no, he liked a lot. I, 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 for me, I mean, like, I, I, I for one thing, I, I don't really do zombie stuff in mm-hmm. general. I, I, I'm not really, I'm not the first one to, to share this, but, like, I, I find zombie stuff to be a very thin veneer for dehumanization in a way that is uncomfortable for me. Like, I, I don't think this is, like, an outrageous thing where I'm going to condemn everyone who fucking loves zombie fiction because there it just, whatever that, that fictional wall is that, that helps people separate themselves and enjoy it, like, vicariously, I just have less of an ability to do that with zombie fiction. I, I There's something about the mix of, like, illness and, like, mental impropriety or something like that and, like, survival culture and, and like... It, it just it, it really gives me the 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 bad yucky feeling that I got in in high school or middle school or whenever we were assigned to read Lord of the Flies and and the entire book's premise is is based on this assumption about human nature that I I just don't necessarily think is true. It just feels like an assumption that needs to be true for the the premise the conceit of the book and and in this case the conceit of the game. Uh, like the the thing that that strikes me about that ending is that the only value i found in it was the moment where ellie asks joel what what happened and joel lies to her and is like everything's cool they actually had like a million people who they could like experiment on and everything's gonna be fine one day you'll see it's totally cool and the way ellie responds to me seemed like she knew that that was a big fat lie and that joel is a big fat liar and and the, the game was almost a sort of like the real problem that I think we're running into when it comes to not running into with, with this game in particular is that 
it, it there is a tendency in narratives that are more modern that are coming out today to react to the state of storytelling rather than telling an actual clever story so like what you're saying about there's it has nothing to say about the ending where you know arguably the thing it's saying is that uh you know even violence for like a like a uh, uh a noble cause like like saving one other human life has like grayness is tainted by violence and that joel is is uh you know uh, or rather ellie is inheriting that legacy of violence rather than the positive things about joel right like you could argue that there's some there's at least like edging towards that right like you, you know would you disagree with that like, that there's like at least that somewhere in there i'm not even saying like that it it's effective in that but yeah and that's what i was saying before but the left behind dlc really like nails that theme it's basically it has a lot of end of summer vibes before college like it's like an indie game almost you're it, it's cuts between two parts in ellie's life one part where it's when joel gets the rhubarb falls from the uh, like the second or third floor and the rhubarb pierces his stomach and then she drags joel off it's about midpoint through the game before you play as her during the winter section and she has to she brings joel to a mall and she has to find a lot of supplies find mm-hmm. medical supplies in order to make sure he doesn't die but then it cuts to when she was first uh, attacked by the zombos and a uh, bitten and but before that she's basically on one you know extensive date with one of her close friends and it's played off wonderfully and that theme really works because it nails the character themes and it avoids some of the tricky questions of i know you're trying to say something but joel just murdered 50 dudes all those dudes and women who could have had families and also have loved ones who are equally fighting for them thus possibly muddling that original message see to me this is also an obsession with a a lack of ability on on gamers part to separate gameplay conceit from story conceit like this is a thing that that frustrates me when it comes to like oh you know uh jrpgs take this for granted right like the the classic example is um uh uh eris and a phoenix down right like it is understood that that there's something about the way Eris is killed in Final Fantasy VII that that is different from the way that characters who have zero HP in battle, right? Like that's understood that the stuff that you're doing in battle in a JRPG isn't one to one with what you're doing in the plot, right? That's why characters can get plot power ups. Like this happened to PMC in a Dragon Age stream the other day, where a, a named character was was in a group of characters who was like massacred by like regular soldiers and then later that named character is just like slaughtering like much better soldiers comparatively by himself and like you could make an argument about that not being consistent but that there's like gameplay reasons why there you would separate that because it's not necessarily in a plot there's a reason for uh, an audience member or a character to feel disempowered for when you're watching a movie, right? Because you're not in control. The movie's going to get you to a, a place where the reason for that disempowerment will become either more clear or there'll be some kind of payoff for that. But in a game, you need to be doing things for periods of time and between plot beats or you're not playing the game anymore, right? And so... There's a whole bunch of filler content that gets added because it's necessary for gameplay, right? Whether that's like development ideas about, oh, there should be action beats every, I don't know, two hours, what have you. Uh, And there just hasn't been a good solution for like telling the sorts of stories that AAA prestige developers seem to want to tell, which are like, 
you know, not necessarily strong stories even of themselves, but like perceived as strong stories, right? Like, like compared to like a, you know, a film or something, right? Like, like that seems to be the idea that the, the, you, you get this moment of connection between Ellie and Joel and you play as Joel as he, he, you know, goes through with all the murders in the hospital, right? And kills all the doctors and he rescues Ellie. And like, whether you agree or disagree with Joel, the fact that you were the one carrying all those things out is going to have some kind of weight, right? One way or the other. The, the problem is that the payoff just isn't anything. Like, there isn't really like, you would almost want there to be a confrontation where Ellie is like, what about all those people? Like, uh, you know, you, like, think about the weight of this thing that you did. You would almost want there to be that scene just because then there would be a, a payoff, a reason for, for putting the player in that position. But because they want it to be perceived as like artful, they, they don't have it. They just end with nothing. And they, and they kind of quote unquote, let the, the audience come to a conclusion. But it, I think it weakens the, the, the ultimate like blow they're trying to come away with. Right. Because it, it's not really reaching a point. It, it just sort of ends. Right. And like, you can make an argument about, how effective that is one way or the other. But I think ultimately because it's not confronting the, the thing that it's going for the, the actual weight of sacrificing the world for Ellie doesn't end up hitting unless, unless, you know, you just, and this is the thing about storytelling. Like if I just pretend that, you know, cause I understood the idea that it was going for. And if I just pretend that it did it good, then <laughs> maybe it's effective for me. Right. Yeah, compared to other games, I judge uh, Last of Us a little differently just because it's focused on realism and the fact that it's rubbing, you know, it's meant to depict it's a very real world. Like with Final Fantasy VII, for me, that's uh, cartoony. I take the characters seriously, but I could throw the, you know, the gameplay conceits don't destroy whatever version of verisimilitude I have in my head. Last of Us, though, for me, it's a game that really does pride itself in its realism. And then when you're fucking right. rubbing my nose in, like, the, the, the cold-blooded murder I've just committed, you gotta have something to say. Like, I judge Last of Us differently than I would judge a serious Sam game or a Doom game, for example. And that's where the well, that, game really trips up for me. Well, that's my point, though, is that it just shouldn't have... Like, it's one thing that to be concerned with violence, and it just shouldn't then have its main gameplay conceit be violence. Like, like, and I don't think a, and I don't that's think what a the game of, has... Oh, go on, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. I, I was just going to say, I don't think a game has done a good version of this. Like, the 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 version that people would, would hold up is Undertale, right? Undertale is the, the one that people like as far as, like, ah, uh, you took a gameplay conceit for granted, and actually it's bad. Like... You know, I don't think a game has come up with a good way to do this because this is a frustrating way to treat your audience always. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's just like a, a, a there is this conceit that that tricking your audience into engaging with something that they take for granted and then like trying to contextualize it as as bad after the fact when there wasn't an option or there wasn't it wasn't really clear what you were doing. I don't know how effective that is as anything but a gotcha. Yeah, right. Like and, and that's really all there is to it. And I feel like no game has really done a good version of this. Like Spec Ops, maybe I've never played. I don't know. You know. Uh, uh, I mean, the thing about Spec Ops is that it has the context of being about like modern soldiers, which I think is more useful than a zombie apocalypse in terms of contextualizing the violence and jingoism endemic to that sort of genre. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I feel like I would, if there was some kind of like, oh, the this violence is begot by a dehumanization that is propagated by the zombie, like, 
that's that's not even close to where The Last of Us is, right? Like, the, nowhere even close does that come up where Joel's like, oh, it used to be pretty good about treating people like people. and then But then they started turning to fungus, and I don't even think of them like people no more, and it became very easy to, to inflict. I don't remember if Joel has a southern... That's, that's not Troy the Baker, worst right? Joel impression I've ever heard. <laughs> Just, do you see what I'm saying, though? Like, it's not even there, right? Like, yeah. Joel is not that kind of person. He's not that interesting enough to have that, even that observation. So, n- none of this really lands anywhere. Like, none of the, like, Ellie is close to an interesting enough person to, to care about where they, you know, how they're molded by violence, but Joel isn't. Like, Joel, it's too late. <laughs> you know, like, he's just very much a, a breaking bad. Like, like, yeah, wish he's, he's an old anti-hero is what he is. Yeah, he is a wish. Like, I don't even know how much you could call him anti-hero because, like, ultimately people want to be this guy, right? People, like, especially Americans, love the idea of committing a heinous act, but for a quote-unquote righteous cause. Like, it is very American, this idea. But Left Behind does sidestep a lot of these issues. It really focuses... It doesn't really focus on combat. It's basically a walking simulator. There is combat in the game, but it's really focused on you and a... You you in this case is Ellie, and your best friend, which is Riley, and you are basically going on a date in the mall, and it's great. Yeah, I think you can find ways to invent interaction that would even include what we might call violence and, and it be, like, engaging and not be, like, a like a stupid uh rub your nose in it like you're a dog that that went piddle on the floor yeah. uh, style of storytelling which games seem to be kind of obsessed with right now i was even you know i a couple weeks ago i i, I complimented god of war for uh, a moment where it recontextualizes some of its violence and like the, the point i'm making there is more just that games just don't do that as a habit and, and that's really where it's like notable not that in and of itself is like praiseworthy so to speak but mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know at least, though, would you say you got, like, you know, I, like I said, I'm not a zombie guy, so I came from this, and I was like, bleh, whatever. <laughs> but did you, how, did you really, did you have at least a good time, or? Oh, yeah, like, you... I, I'm down on some of the story beats, particularly to the end of the game, but once I got the game, uh, handle on the gameplay, it's, it's really fun to strategize different ways to, like, knifing someone. I always think of the episode, the D&D episode from Community, when Troy, played by Donald Glover, of course, is about to attack for the first time, and he looks at his notes, and he goes, I attack him, knife style. And I think of that every time I get like, sneak up behind someone and just you know shank them with my knife. That yeah, is knife uh, style. that never fails to be satisfying. The stealth elements, you know, eventually I acclimated well to them. It, it's basically like for me a solid like eight. I don't think the game is revelatory. I do not think the game is as anywhere near as smart as it is or its fans might think it is. But I do not think it's a terrible game. Uh, the environmental storytelling is phenomenal at times. Not just the letters you pick up and the emotional impact of some of those letters, but really just seeing what would happen to an environment over time without humans living in it. There's a lot of artistry in that. And I'm really looking forward to that with uh, Last of Us 2. I feel like, unfortunately, it's it's going to be recontextualized because of Last of Us 2, but maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Uh, PMC, did you have anything you wanted to drop? Uh, Not too much. The only thing I would say is I had the uh, opportunity to play in uh, a visual novel called Ken Androids Prey, uh, written by Slager Nelson Jr., who's who's done a lot of indie stuff recently. Like he, I think I he did that. some of the writing for Hypnospace Outlaw, uh, developed by Natalie Clayton, who left game development after this to then uh, do a lot of writing. Like She writes for uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, among other places, and music by Priscilla Snow. And it's a very short visual novel that just is about... Uh, Two, two mech pilots stuck on uh, basically their, their machines are inoperable 
and they're probably going to die once the sun rises because it's going to cause one of their fuel tanks to ignite. That's and they bad. they just sort of yell at each other and have some real existential crises. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like, mm, I'm, I mean, I'm not a philosophy expert, so I can't speak to that, but uh, it was fun. It, it's uh, some good visuals. It's definitely some good music. The music was really good. And, uh, you know, some, some clever, funny writing in, in terms of the dialogue that you can have with this other pilot. Uh, and some, you know, some very quick quick shades of world building sort of the sort of the sensation of like a one shot or something like that is what i would i would call playing this and i enjoyed it you know it's the sort of thing i I believe it has now been ported to modern consoles so uh you know i don't know how much it costs on the nintendo switch eShop, but you could get it there i got it off of uh its original publishing location which of course is itch.io i don't know if it's a part of the itch.io giant bundle uh the bundle for racial justice that's right you know of course the machinations position is black lives matter defund the police uh if you want to support through bundles uh there is a huge bundle in itch.io uh which i think uh ignis mentioned the name of maybe i'll include the link in the show notes but it, when it started out there was like 700 some games in it and i got i think i got into it with uh, with a big donation then and since then they've continued to add games to it i, I think the count is somewhere over you know approaching 1500 i think it, the bundle is now re- raised north of six million dollars uh for you know for the funds that it's uh, giving money to uh, so that's a neat thing. There are a few uh, mech games in that um, that I've I've had my eye on. I think one in particular is Extreme Meat Punks Forever. Yes, yeah, that's a, that's one that, that I've heard as well. Would, how would you describe the dynamic between those two pilots in the game? Would you say it's a a Char and Amaro, or would you say it's like a, like Goldicott and Cisco in the episode duet? Like, what what kind of dynamic do they have? Is it like friends to lovers or rivals to lovers kind of thing? I think it's I think it's mostly just sort of. Uh, Goldicon and Cisco is is maybe closer because I think you have a situation where the other pilot uh, is just sort of extremely upset about the circumstances and begins searching for kind of ways to feel better about it. They say, well, what questions can I answer for myself in these final moments? Interesting. And, and they're kind of seeking out your uh, approval or disapproval of asking these questions because um, there's some concern that maybe we're not even real. Maybe we're just robots. And you know maybe maybe we're just AI. We don't really know, but but if we try to if we try to ask those questions, we may hasten our demise in doing so. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's fun. It's, it's interesting. I, I've been I've been wanting to. I, I know my wheelhouse in mech games is uh, really the action stuff, your armored cores and that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, especially I think it's useful for us to you know uh, to maybe spelunk around a bit more. And also, I think. Mech games aren't quite AAA games right now, so I think there's um, you know there's areas in these these indie spaces uh, for all these kinds of games for uh, strategy games, action games, visual novels to really explore. So I think one of the one of the big mech games news wise is uh, Thirteen Sentinels got a release date for later this year, uh, and that's going to be you know I think part uh, sort of adventure game part. I think real time strategy game was what the marketing language uh, said, but obviously I'll, yeah, I'll watch it, footage for it myself. Kinda, it's mostly like ninety. I hear I haven't played it. It's like ninety percent a visual novel, and the story is really aces. Like uh, like Sakurai and Yoko Taro went out of their way to say, "Go check out this game." Um, we might not be, you know, we're not part of this company, but this is a really good story. It won like some like really notable awards in Japan for narrative, like outside of the video game realm. And a lot of fans who've played it only speak very highly of it. So I'm very much excited. It's coming out a lot sooner than they expected, like early yeah, September. September. Yeah, yeah. despite Yoko Taro's uh, 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 recommendation, I'm still interested in checking it out. <laughs> um, but uh, 
despite or not despite what the fuck am i talking about the 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 only real thing i've got going on is that um i am weak and because pmc has been playing dragon age 2 i've I've been playing dragon age inquisition but anyway other than that (laughs) i haven't got much going on i've still been trying to get back into xenoblade 1 and 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 it's not really working in a way that is uh uh distressing for me but it's i feel like there's a hill i'm going to get over eventually would you say you're not feeling it I'm I'm not. It's not uh, I I don't I would love to go into it, but I I I feel like it would it would, it would be a, a going down a, a hill I wouldn't be able to get back out sure, of like sure. easily. Another podcast intro, I'll talk about it maybe. But but with with that said, do you do you wanna do you wanna start setting the stage? Do you wanna? I think the curtain is starting to rise here. Do you, do you guys ready for? I mean, I don't know why I'm framing it like like it's an like it's a show. Like there's some kind of uh uh you know fabrication that's happening in front of us with the big O. Obviously, like I I don't know why I would use that framing. But are you guys good to go? You wanna wanna get started here? Please forge ahead. <laughs> Cast us in the name of God. <laughs> God. All right. Can we talk about? Do you want to talk about this quote? We can start here with the because it really does. In many ways, the show starts there in the cast in the name of God, ye not guilty quote. Uh, Stephen, did you find a more? I I have a very quick and dirty answer for for where they came up with this quote. But did you find anything more definitive other than uh, uh, Sato or Kadayama saw this quote in a magazine interview of John Milius and? <laughs> Apparently, John Milius had seen that it's like on the uh, uh, the swords of executioners from the 17th century or something. No, like my cynical response is a lot of Japanese creatives, just like how we, I've mentioned this before, but like how we fetishize Japan, they fetishize the West, and like as if you're going, you like you need that cool uh, like tattoo from uh, you know some Asian yeah. language. That's essentially what well, they love doing that. Like I mentioned this in the Discord too, but you have your Ava, your Robert Browning poem, uh, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Um, same writer as the Helsing TV show. You know, the bird of Hermes is my name, eating my wings to make me tame. That's nonsense. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything, but it's and it's almost like, not a good luck charm, but it's just aesthetically pleasing. I mean, look at Nomura and his fetishization of Latin, for example. It's very par for the course, and especially in this like post-Ava time. Um, I just thought... It, I just, in my mind, Sato and the various writers just thought this looks cool, and it, it lends this a certain gravity too. Well, but the you, so you didn't see that thing because I did find a thing where they they got the quote from John Milius. Oh the, yeah, I the, saw that yeah. too. I'm just what attracted them to that quote or the the aestheticization of that. Oh, okay. So, I, I, but I mean, like, so, but basically, what I was speaking to though was I, I wasn't really able to determine whether or not this John Milius thing was true. I'm not sure if this is just one of those crazy cocaine things that he said, or, you know... I want to believe it's true, just based on the sources I read. The historical, you know, fact of people writing shit on their swords, you know? Like, I'm sure it did happen. I just wasn't able to to verify it, really. Yeah, in in a history sense, like, for example, in the 18th century... Um, they would put messages on cannonballs, very similar to that. Um, Last Judgment of Kings was very famously, it's, it's a Joe Abercrombie book, but he pulled that quote from, I believe, a cannonball um, fired during the reign of Louis the Fifteenth. So there's a tradition of this. 
<laughs> I guess I would write like hold this, <laughs> I guess, or something like that. Um, I would write just post on my cannonball. <laughs> um, we have come to terms, is what I would put on my cannonball. Uh, anyway, episode one of the Big O. Roger the Negotiator. I should say it like the phone. Roger the Negotiator. I was thinking more like uh, Shatner and Priceline Negotiator in my head. <laughs> Roger, the Priceline negotiator. He kind of, anyway. <laughs> the curtain rises and our story begins with a city of gray and questions, Paradigm City. A city like every city and a city like none at all. Roger Smith introduces us and explains he is a negotiator. We see one of these negotiations and actions between a scientist whose daughter has been kidnapped and a criminal or businessman, what's the difference, named Beck. The girl, oh, but, 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 without much delay, negotiations break down as he is bamboozled with an android version of the girl he is sent to rescue. However, his gadgetry ultimately triumphs and a defeat is overturned. He learns from his bar informant, Big Ear, that his client is rumored to have discovered a memory fragment, something of unspeakable value to a city who forgot. Later, he is once again confronted by a Dorothy who asks for Roger's protection. This request is interrupted by a meeting from Dan Dastin who is there more or less to deepen the mystery of the setting and tell Roger to back the fuck off. Roger does not back the fuck off, and he and Dorothy seek out Saldano's factory to investigate. Miguel Saldano is the creator of Dorothy. There, he finds Saldano has been critically wounded, and he dies in Roger's arms before elucidating what's going on. Roger and Dorothy are attacked at that scene by some thugs, but thanks to Dorothy's android speed and strength far beyond a mere humans, they're able to escape. While they were being attacked, a giant robot appeared downtown and started doing what it always wanted to do, rob banks. What's Roger going to do about it? Leave into action by calling his final machine, the Big O. During the battle, we see Dorothy 2 on the ground connecting with Dorothy 1, and after the Big O's devastating final attack, seemingly lose all function. Dorothy 1 threatens to collapse on Dorothy 2 and Dastin, closing our episode. Any thoughts of the, on the summary or, or, or just, uh, just off the top of uh, first episode thoughts? I was uh, not captivated, but I was there for the ride. I I am am incredibly at the on the outside of these first two episodes, incredibly warm on the show. Like when I approach a lot of these, either revisiting or visiting for the first time, these older mech shows. The first thing I ask myself is this: more concerned with does this have something to say, or is it style over substance? Does it think it has something to say and falls flat on its face? This is the first show in my mind, based on these first two episodes, where it's purely style, and I am all right with that. It is atmosphere and mood and over-the-top action, and I am here 100% for it. And I think it really does pull that off well. One thing that sticks out for me is the extent to which some, like the city, everything about the city and all the machines feel impossibly large in a way that both like our characters, but also humanity in general, cannot hope to ever like fill up. I think, you know, in everything, in, in the, the cityscapes, the domes, the factories, even the size of Roger's car, uh, it looks like, everyone looks like children next to this setting that they're in, uh, that, you know, obviously we, we get, I think, uh, you know, to the sort of brief description of Paradigm City in terms of being a place where, you know, people forgot everything 40 years ago, but it almost looks like, you know, <laughs> that they wouldn't even have the, the mental processing to do it, you know, that... Everything is just so big, and I couldn't help just the way that you know you roll up on either the uh, the initial negotiation place when they do the first exchange, or the uh, the Saldana's factory where we discover you know that the something left behind a big hole. Well, who knows what that could be? And you know, and and Rogers ambushed by the criminals. 
it's just the sense of um, that the mystery here is too big for us to solve. So let's not worry about it. Well, I, I definitely I, I agree with both points. I want to address both of them a, a little bit separately. Uh, the, the one thing I would say about the way the presentation of the show is that I, I wouldn't call it all style because there's clearly a lot of thought put into it. it, it it's all re- like reflecting the, the general malaise of the show and also the, the lack of answers. What, what's interesting about it to me is that, that what I was struck with the amount of thought that was clearly being put into each shot. There's a very clever bit. I mean, the most obvious bit would be in the bar when he's meeting Big Ear. Um, because, uh, it, uh, you know, there is a, a pretty straightforward shot of both Big Ear and Roger being uh, uh, blocked by a table as they meet and discuss. And, and this is a clear sort of signaling about how... Roger is meant to be here anonymously that even though he is here for a specific purpose and maybe everyone is aware of that purpose like there's still a, a pageantry on display of you know him meeting his informant and and slyly putting it giving him the money you know we see him do it the exact same way and and I'm fairly certain he's going to keep doing it this way uh, and the the structure of this is is such that we even there's even a clever shot uh, where we see Roger number one in the far background um big ear number two kind of uh, uh, up a level and and then in the far foreground number three is a billiard ball labeled three um and the way that it our our eyes can focus on each subject one two three is a really clever and stylized shot that that you know on one hand is is giving us like visual cues about like oh <laughs> there's there's thoughtfulness in this world right even if it's not like a uh a very clear meaning of like oh uh roger is smallest in this scene it's it's not that sort of thing it's just that the the composition is such that that you couldn't just accidentally arrive at that style that choice right to cover up roger's face and big ears face to you know repeat the shots entirely in episodes one and two um that sort of stuff speaks to a and and again you know to to follow up on what pmc is saying about the size of the city being like overwhelming right and and like uh fucking uh 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 roger smith's like chevy like fucking city or whatever it looks like a devastator or some shit like a uh i swear to god that car is expanding sometimes like when i don't notice it's like it's like that uh, instead of the house of leaves it's the car of leaves sometimes (laughs) there's just extra compartments that weren't there before yeah you have to flip it upside down to read certain portions of it yeah um, it's, it, it is definitely a, a show that surprised me with its thoughtfulness from the get go, but it, that's also where that my reaction of like, who, who is this for? <laughs> because, okay. So I, I, I do know the answer to this because really what they're doing is they're, you, you see the shot of the, the traffic light and you see the shot of, of, you know, the gray overcast skies and you're immediately put into Gotham, right? You immediately put into the animated series Gotham, especially with its stark color and straight lines uh and and the thing about batman is that the reason that batman can spend an episode like looking into some clues and talking to alfred and meeting other characters and not punching and and not doing things is because he's batman and there's a certain sort of like cultural currency that having a batman logo on your thing sort of it makes a deal with the audience like yes you are you are here for Batman, and Batman will show up to do Batman things that you expect. Pow, zip, boom. 
you know, I understand me, Ignis Maddox. I'm like, yes, I'm here for some Ultraman style Toku flair. We're going to get some giant robots. We're going to get some giant monsters. We're going to get some rocking adventure without too much need to, to settle on like why things are happening. But as a child, I'm like, I'm suddenly in for like the holodeck episodes of TNG for some reason. Like at least as far, I I can't remember the, the detective that those stories are based off of, but it is a straightforward noir for, I want to say 15 minutes of a 20 minute show. (laughs) Um, and this is not a complaint, but also like, no wonder though this show didn't work for the audience that they were going for. Like it, it is, not really a show for kids. It is it is not giving you any answers about what's going on. Um and the 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 things it's asking you to take for granted, I think it's gonna make it troublesome for some adults as well. Um, you know, uh I, I don't want to jump ahead to anything that you guys wanted to tackle in particular, but but something I, I'm fascinated with with this show is the core conceit of of the city of amnesia, of of the event that occurred 40 years ago and robbed everyone of their memory and what that effectively means for the mechanics of the show and how, you know, Roger Smith has uh, a watch that can uh, control his car. Uh, He has a suitcase with rockets on it, uh, which feels like it could only be useful for the situation that we saw (laughs) saw in in a way that, you know, speaks to its obvious uh, 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 you know, um, inspirations like Thunderbirds and James Bond, like that's a James Bond ass thing. Um, uh, and you know, I wanted to ask, ask PMC because I feel like you'd have a better feel for this. Um, not because of James Bond, but in in the moment where Beck's goons turn to aim at the um, the suitcase flying through the air, <laughs> did you get Goldeneye vibes from that? There's something about that the, the the noise and the angle of the guns and the kind of guns they were using. I was like, was that a Goldeneye noise that they used? Maybe it's just 1999 and like for some reason that that triggered some kind of like visual audio memory for me where I'm like, oh yes, I, Goldeneye would have been around during this anyway, like a year ago or something like that. Uh, am, am I just making that up or that that didn't occur to you in particular? I, I don't think I made that particular pool, but I think that kind of. Because that's the other thing that happens, too, is that, especially in a Bond film, is that when the action sort of stirs up and, and our hero uses their gadgets to create a scene, that, of course, necessarily, if it's spilling out into a populated area, that it really creates as much of a comedy scene as possible. And, of course, one right. of the classic ways of doing that is you spill the cash everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, now that you paint it like that, it very much reminds me of um of you to a kill and driving the half of a car through the yeah, it's basically that sort of scene, huh? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Or um, even, I mean, if you're making another golden eye pool and you're talking about the the tank it crashing through the 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 truck of water bottles. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. And, and, and uh what was it in uh, St. Petersburg, I think that is, but Yeah. Um, I don't actually know, but no, I know which scene you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Every, I mean, the tank chase is what was when you use the bumper, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, the, the other thing is, though, what's great about the conceit of the city of amnesia is that there's no answer to any of these questions about these gadgets or, you know, the, the, the role that, that Roger Smith has. Later, there's a, one of the most intriguing scenes in, like, in fiction I've engaged with his, recently is the scene where um, Roger meets with Dan. And uh, Dan is, like, checking out photos of Roger, right? And it seems like we can see Roger as we know him now. He doesn't look too much 
younger or older than in those photos than than we see know him now as some kind of military policeman or some kind of member of the military um formerly but they don't know like dan has this great line where he's like you don't fucking know if these pictures are real and you know out, out of quote-unquote habit dan refers to roger as lieutenant roger um but and and you know the way that roger reacts makes it seem like there's some kind of like baggage there but it's very intriguing that roger doesn't actually know like his reaction is is and this is the thing the point of that scene is that there are even if there are no memories there's still habits right like there's some indelible element of of humanity that is not touched by this event you know that there you know that's one of the big points of roger's uh narrations in this first episode is to say like yeah this is all weird it's fine, you know, we figured it out. Like, it's fine. You know, humans, one way or the other, have to figure out how to live, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Nancy. I was just going to say, you know, and maybe you're, you're getting here, but I think the the one thing that, watching this now, as, uh, you know, as I guess I'm 32, um, it really sticks out to me the... Uh, the le- the level of privilege with which Roger makes that statement. Oh, because sure. He's in a mansion full of gadgets, and you know, and we see people on the street keeping themselves warm by fires. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I think we are meant to come a- away with that conclusion mm-hmm. anyhow, just because there's a line later. This might be an episode two. I can't remember where he's you know only the elderly miss their memories now like that that's some sort of thing a shithead says you know what i mean do we have to be worried about how old people are in this anime or can we just ignore it well i so this is kind of the point that this is kind of the point i was getting to which is that because the event took place 40 years ago and we're we see photos that you know must have been taken before the event because people don't have memory of it and roger so like we we have to assume roger's at least 40 years old but because of the setting is unclear as to whether the source of this amnesia is technologically based or magically based or or even narratively based we 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 don't i don't think it matters too much and and if you think about it too hard it makes no sense because you have the event you have the event 40 years ago wiping out everyone's memory completely roger's not older than 40 that makes no sense roger's not older than the 40 he would have that would place him in his 60s at this point if if people are aging chronologically like if time is a straightforward arrow in this case and it seems like they after the, the event 40 years ago people can lose their memory but they don't that happens randomly whenever it serves the narrative, like with the photos. But he has memories. He knows who Norman is. He remembers Dorothy. So it's not like when he goes to sleep, he forgets everything. And then you have the potential to also regain those memories randomly, too, which is what happens to uh, the dad. The old, you know, the old man. Oh, uh, Wainwright? End. Yeah, Wainwright. Miguel? Well, well, okay, yeah. You mean the grandpa. Okay, yeah. so yeah. Wainwright. Well, so, yeah. Well, so the, the the one thing I would I would push back on there is that I you know with Norman and and names and stuff like that I don't think that's like random bits of, of information that people remember. It seems like people, you know, and and I'm I'm trying my best to approach this with understanding gained from watching this episode and separating it from my knowledge of what this will all eventually be revealed to be. I'm I am pretending that I am proceeding from that position, right? It seems like people don't know who they were insofar as like the events of their life that led them to those moments. It seems like 
everyone is putting together pieces of information based off of what's immediately around them. It appears to be what's going on just from Roger, right? You know, based off of... Because uh, no one else we get to be too intimate with, right? I, I can imagine Norman waking up in a room in a giant mansion and looking in the mirror and seeing his butler mustache and looking in his closet and seeing all of his butler clothes and being like, uh, I, well, <laughs> I guess I'm a fucking butler, you know? Um, whereas, like... With with Roger, see that's where I'm thinking they arrived at the the very fictional job of negotiator, right? Where it's like he woke up, he's in a mansion, he's got a suit and also a mech. So he's like, "Well, what the fuck job could I do with all this stuff? I guess I negotiate between powerful people, right? Because I I'm a neutral party with with uh you know elements that would make me impossible to fuck with. So if that's the case, that means that if I'm I guess a just person. I'm going to use these things to help negotiate between, you know, uneven parties. That, like, you know, again, like we we don't want to be imposing too much hard logic here because that's outside of the purview of what's going on in these individual episodes, right? Do you do you both think that's fair to say? No, I, I think that's right, and I think that also draws from the inspiration that the the show is based on because we can think of, for example, another famously ageless character is, is James Bond, who is you know, been involved in every sociopolitical conflict for 50 years and really hasn't gotten any older. So, but, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just agreeing then. And, and yeah. Batman, same diff. Right. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. we're talking about uh, creating a, a character who can sort of mimic the uh, uh, qualities of having like a 50, 60 plus year history, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I should say right off the bat, I haven't seen Big O Season 2, so I really don't know whatever answers Kanaka came up with. Not that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that if and when we get there. My personal read on it, because it can fly, I mean, I, I believe Roger was born after that 40-year event, personally. I'm, I'm reading it. That's my own headcanon there. That's why it says, like, this affects people who are older in particular, because their entire past has been wiped out. But, I mean, there's all sorts of ways. It makes no sense. There's no, you can't crunch those numbers. It makes no sense. Well, that's what I mean by, like, there, there, that sort of thing you can, like, a, unless it is outright dictated to us that this person's role in the story is, like, child, like, born post the event, then then it's not worth considering. Yeah. Those aren't the social dynamics that we should be bringing, like... It's, it's fun to think about, though. I, I like thinking about it and ruminating through it. That's my personal, like, sweet spot for world building sometimes is not overly didactic. I would prefer a little more meat on these bones sometimes, but still, I enjoy the mystery of it. Oh, see, for me, I'm the opposite. I, I feel strongly like they have they have hit the sweet spot as to like, oh, all these characters are essentially ageless. Like, it's not important unless they tell me that it's important, you know. Um, but I, I, you know, whether or not that's an aspect of the plot, we'll we'll you know, because I don't remember. <laughs> like, I I'm honestly coming to that that photo of like just intrigued, right? Because really, the thing I'm speaking to is that this setup has created a context where the fucking characters couldn't tell us why they have giant robots, you know, like they, they don't know. <laughs> like that's, it, it's just the truth of their world. It's the truth of their world for 40 years. And so it's just matter of fact to them. And the way that the show presents it to us is matter of fact in a way that's like really cool. It, it, it's, it, you know, it is tough though. If you're the sort of person who, you know, needs world building, fed to them or or they get caught up on those questions right like i feel like there is um a a good enough just sort of dumping you into the action here where you're not going to be stumbling over 
uh, too many questions in episode one, right? I think episode two, well, I think the end of episode one is really where that starts to happen, right? When it when it fully becomes a Kyodai show. When I, when I say Kyodai, do you guys know what I mean by that? Nope, I do not. Okay, so basically, what what I'm referring when when you're talking about a Kyodai show, you're talking about a a character, whether that's a human or a robot, that starts normal size and then grows to a large size in order to battle some kind of foe right and ultraman being the most famous example of a kyodai hero so the reason i'm bringing this up now is because big o more than some of the other things that we've we've talked about so far anyway has more of its roots in that era of show than actual other mecha stuff right this is undeniably a mecha show i'm not going to sit here and and you know like try and mince words about that but what it really has more in common with is is like ultraman inframan uh, that sort of tokusatsu era of of show you know which we have talked about but what i mean by that is um the summoning of the robot the robot having either an ancient or alien or or unknown origin um and the the structure in which that the action plays out is all intended to invoke that sort of era of like Ultraman, right? Um it's it's that sort of like lack of previous history and the the a character is being so familiar with it. Like Dustin hates the big O. <laughs> like, I feel like he's he, a very very Zenigata Lupin relationship. Well, I'm very happy you said that because <laughs> I, I, later I'm, I'm going to be talking about the performance. But um, uh, before we we uh, get to that stuff um, here, while we're talking about um, the character's lack of history and how that, you know, for me, my idea about like, oh, this creates the perfect context where they basically don't have to explain anything. Did did you guys? How do you feel about that idea? Do you think that's that's something that the the show is going for intentionally, or do you think it's like a happy accident? I like it because, like I said before, I think it does a lot to add to the overall mood and ambiance of the show, which is like the visual, the visuals and the environment and the flair. That's where I, like I said before, I think where the show succeeds. I think, like you said, it, it's very visually thoughtful, but I don't think it's not very meditative. It doesn't give us any big answers to these this very unique philosophical question that's not what this show is and i think that is an overall strength of the show it's not like a it's not a philosophical treatise of what would happen in this world like what psychological effects would it have it touches on that in some of its like melancholic vignettes but i don't think that's the emphasis of the show and that i'm fine with yeah i think it feels i would say it feels pretty intentional to sort of not uh not ask too many questions i think uh yeah, the the focus is is the mood, is the mystery. There is um this is a very unique show. Even for just our our I almost called it discography. That's not fucking right. <laughs> that's not what we do. Um for our oeuvre, that's not even the right word either. The the stuff we've covered on the show. Um we we haven't really covered something that is so inherently dependent on the style. The, the I don't want to call it the genre, but um noir is is dripping and and in like like all throughout this this story as a element of how we're going to receive the information and so when uh steven when you're talking about you know the the show is is presenting us with a philosophical situation of like living a, a life without 
memory and and trying to you know not not trying to actually it's already shown us these people have chosen to just move on right and it's more about the situations that are going to pop up now that we know for a fact that that's true mm-hmm. but it, do you think that the show is not going to be concerned with answering the questions of its setting then do you think that i'm, I'm not asking that as a because uh, again i only barely remember Season two of Big O. And, I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes. Uh, so I, one thing I would like to say as a little table setting for me when I look at this work is when you talk about season one and season two, when I think of the show, I think of – even though I haven't seen – I refer to it more as series one and series two just because I almost think of based on the creative shackles that were placed on the creative team, it's almost like – it's it's more of a separate work than like a, sec, a second season of a TV show. Because a lot of time – a good amount of time passed between – series one and series two to the point where in japan it wasn't called season two it was called big o two the roman numeral two but yes i as for far as season one yes i think that's going to be the case that's you know pmc i i want to i'm i'm speaking directly to you now because this is this is fascinating to me i have no memory of the show feeling like that like that that the the continuation of big o felt like a different kind of big and i'm not declaring I'm, I'm not saying this like steven hero you're full of shit <laughs> you don't know what the fuck you're talking about steven hero that's not what i'm saying as much as like like that i'm so interested in in coming away you know i it's been a long time since i've watched big o do, do you feel like that's something like detectable i I'm, I'm not saying that steven hero is wrong I'm, I'm just now before we've seen it i i'm, I'm curious is that your, your memory of it yeah, I think that follows with my memory of it, just because the 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 second series or season uh, drives drives at a at a at a linear narrative, and it follows Roger. Like obviously, these two episodes we watched, it follows Roger, but it follows Roger in the way that you know that a Philip Marlowe novel <laughs> follows right. Philip. Uh, whereas you know, uh, season two, I what I recall follows follows Roger in. Um, in in much in much more uh, I'm trying to think of what I would what I would compare it to, but it, it's it's much more interested in seeking out the mystery. You know, I think we might have moments in this first season where, where Roger dwells in sort of a melancholy way upon uh, his circumstances, but uh, you know, in, in season two, it's almost more like um, you know, like like in Spike and Bebop trying to get to the bottom of like what the hell is Pierre LaFalle's deal or something, or or why okay. you know why why is the chess master doing this? You know, in those, uh, I mean, Pierre maybe is a bad example, but with the chess master, for example, chess master Hex in that episode of Bebop, we get to the bottom of it, we solve the mystery, we know what's going on, we follow, but like I, you know, Roger Smith emphatically uh, at the end of episode two is like, you know what. There's some, some questions we don't need to answer. Don't worry yeah, about it. <laughs> well, we 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 gotta fucking. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, Go ahead, I don't think you're gonna have that moment with Roger in in the second series. I don't. Uh, Roger's a different character than I think that he's not gonna say. Well, let's not worry about that. I know a lot about the, how the sausage is made too, just based on my extensive research. I will say this: I held this back from the history episode to surprise us whenever we get there. But Cartoon Network basically said you have to answer the mystery. That was the stipulation contractually: you have to answer the mystery. So that changed the entire creative process, writing the scripts from then on. Am so, I... so if that that clause wasn't included in the picking up of a second season, and 
it still happened anyway. I imagine Big O season two, series two would have been completely different. If Wow Wow didn't say, all right, I want we want to reduce your 26 episode order to 13, and they, they finished their outline as it was originally conceived, I think the mystery still would have lingered, and I think the show would have been much better off. I say this having not seen season two. Yeah, I I would love, I would really love to talk about this just because I have strong feelings on the like, uh, answering a, a question posed by your narrative destroys your narrative, Twin Peaks season two, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. I will say, um, interestingly enough, I, when I revisited Big O, I was like, this is very much in conversation with Cowboy Bebop, the dub. And uh, they cast Stephen Bloom because of that. Cowboy Bebop in the United States came after, which kind of blew my mind. Big O started airing in April. Cowboy Bebop started airing in September of that same year. I thought it was the other way around. In Japan, it was. And Spike, the Japanese voice actor, is not the same as uh, Roger Smith in the Japanese right. dub. But that was just interesting in my mind. Because that kind of blew my mind because I thought, oh, we're going to... We're gonna cap. We're gonna continue on the success from Cowboy Bebop. So we're going to find a show aesthetically and tonally very similar, and maybe we can cast the same voice actor to maybe recapture some of that magic. But no, it wasn't that the case at all. Since we're on the topic, uh, uh, can I uh, can I say something particularly spicy? Ooh, please. Uh, I think Stephen J. Bloom is a bad choice for Roger Smith. Uh, I don't think he's good. Uh, or rather, uh, I can see where they came up with this, right? Because he has a cool voice, right? Like, Stephen J. Bloom has a cool voice. He sounds like a cool character from a comic book. Like, he, he sounds like, like he's in the future or something like that. And so I can see them casting this, and it's like, well, he's the hero, and he's he's got cool gadgets and stuff like that, so he, he'll be cool. The problem is here... That Stephen J. Bloom is um, doing his thing, and it's it's the same voice he uses for Spike, um, and he doesn't really characterize Roger Smith with his line delivery. Really, like he's kind of reading it all the same way. And so, for stuff where there are, he's meant to sound professional when he says to Norman, "Don't criminals should act professionally?" Don't you think? Like if you if I covered my eyes and and was like oh Spike said that it, it, it he wouldn't really have done anything different to differentiate between Roger Smith and Spike and so it doesn't really come off like the 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 point of that line to to sort of like make clear that that Roger Smith is someone for whom like propriety and style and presentation matters a lot like it doesn't it doesn't land because even it's just Stephen J Bloom and he's just doing his Stephen J Bloom voice and he doesn't sound like someone who is like putting up a front and and being kind of I don't want to say a dandy someone who is like uh uh, uh like uh shallow or or surface level but it, 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 there's just nothing there there he just sounds cool right and like there there are some things where the, that's kind of fine where he he's he's doing okay and for other things like i you know i watching the sub it became clear to me like they cast the the dude that they cast for Roger Smith is definitely doing a a more of a professional sounding person he's like you know he can kind of like stutter and sound goofy in a way that that is a little bit more like out, outrageous and obvious but it, it characterizes roger a little bit more um it, it, it's one of those things where like 
this is probably more to do with just the era than Stephen J. Bloom himself, but I, I can really detect where... Like, this would be the same time he's doing Digimon. And, like, this is the same voice he does for Flamedramon. You know what I mean? That's how seriously he takes this role. And, that, and that's kind of where I'm, I'm like, uh, like, I'm, I'm going to be fine with it. It's not like he's doing, like, a bad job. It, he's just not a good choice for this character, I don't think. It was really funny. Uh, Ignis shares sort of sometimes a, a summary of some bullet points. And so I started thinking about this after seeing some of these comments about the dub performances. And it really is funny for me to put those back to back and to think of how similar they are and just to think about how funny it is to have similar performances for a character who is incapable of forgetting versus a character who is maybe uninterested in remembering yeah <laughs> it's sort of sort of an interesting contrast to put those two together and be like eh, perform them sort of the same and obviously there's other differences and or maybe similarities between spike and roger smith but those that kind of jumped out to me first and foremost Actually, yeah. it's interesting that you should mention that because I have a note on just the similarities. It was very much in conversation with Cowboy Bebop, whether that's for the best or for the worst. I imagine it, it hurts Big O overall. But the one difference between those two, one one major difference is, A, I think Spike has a lot more depth than Roger. Like, Roger is very much a cartoon character in my mind, like in the, the capital C sense of the word. And Roger, kind of like Cloud from uh, Final Fantasy Remake, for me, just comes across as trying to put too much effort into being cool, and occasionally the show will take the piss out of him, particularly through the character of Dorothy. Like, I'm not saying that Big O is in any way meta in this respect, but it's almost as if he knows the expectations of the genre, and he tries to rise to the occasion by dressing all in black, for example, and having oh. some strict code of, like, conduct. And there's, an, like, I think Spike Spiegel is a very cool character. There's an Italian word. It comes from, you know, the Italian Middle Ages, especially, like, with court romances of the time. It's called sprezzatura, and it just means, like, an effortless cool. And Spike Spiegel completely encapsulates that for me. It, he does, it seems like he doesn't put any effort into it, but he just comes across as being both aesthetically cool and personality-wise, I think Spike's a kind of cool character. Whereas Roger, he he puts a lot of effort into his appearance in, to, in order to be cool. And occasionally the show does poke fun of him for that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I find that to be... <laughs> like, it's funny, I, and you know, this is just me. I'm the, the Cowboy Bebop naysayer here on, on this particular podcast. Like, I, I, to me, that's more interesting characterization than Spike kind of ever gets. <laughs> like, that, that, this is just me, though, and my, my sort of take on the, like, cool guy, cowboy character type and, and you know, the, the characterization there being sort of taken for granted and, and that working for Cowboy Bebop. But here, you know, we really have to pay attention to uh, physicality. So um, in there's a scene uh, in uh, the first episode where Roger is meeting with a... a he is told a, a young woman has been let into his his mansion, and, and he says to, uh, "This is part of my problem with the performance, and I and I think this is why I think Roger's coming off as as uh, with little nuances because Stephen J. Bloom isn't doing anything with the lines; he's just kind of reading them. So in this moment where Norman is like, "Oh, there's a there's a young lady here," he he says like a young lady, and you can tell he's trying to be like a salacious Stephen J. Bloom voice, but it's just kind of more like you can't really tell if he means it to be flirty or if he means it to like, "Oh, I'm just repeating what you said," like Solid Snake, right? Um, 
And, and, you know, later in, in, when you watch his physicality as he's moving, he's clearly like excited. He's got a lot of energy, but he's trying to tamp it down. He's like, okay, time to be cool. I'm going to say my cool line when I enter the scene. And it's animated really, really well in a way that, that characterizes him. Like, this is why it occurred to me because it's like, wow, there's a lot going on with Roger as a character, but I'm not getting it through his, his lines. I'm not getting it through his voice. And it, and it completely clicked once I, I watched the sub. And was able to like, you know, appreciate that there's a uh, they're they're doing two separate things. There's a way he's presenting himself and a way he actually is that you need to be, you know, visually. And I'm not saying this as a like, oh, clearly people miss this. It's just that it's subtle. It's not really they're not really underlining it in the same way they're underlining that there's a big fucking robot in the city. You know, um, I feel like though because we've I, this is a pretty good. Um, uh, uh, place to jump off of the topic of Roger, but before we do, were there any other notes about the character of Roger Smith before we really start talking about anybody else? No, I Not think in particular. I covered okay. it. Yeah, I think we got what we wanted. So we meet when we see Roger in his first negotiation. We're introduced to a couple of uh, characters in that situation. Um, the first one is Beck, who is has doing some pretty standard like sixties, seventies era villain signaling where he has a garish suit he's got like a a crazy hairstyle he's always grinning but in a way that's not like comforting he's like you can see where he could be attractive but it's in a like skeevy way um i'm I'm trying to describe the shorthand used in his his characterization because we don't really meet him here he's just kind of on the you know he's with kidnappers and he's on the other end of this negotiation and he seems like a shit right like he, he he tricks Roger with an android. Um, there's a really cool shot of um, fake Dorothy because I don't. Okay, I had to. <laughs> I had to ask you guys this because you can tell me if I am a stupid, but I think I am a smart. And and so let me run this guy you real quick. This Dorothy here is this. This is a third Dorothy. Let me let me let me let me be be clear about what I mean by that. So there is Dorothy One, the lobster robot. We are all clear on that. Is that correct? Yes. Dorothy One. There is Dorothy Two, who is the android, who who is we we will come to learn will be Roger Smith's sidekick more or less. Is is, is that that is fair to say, right? Yes. It is this a third fake Dorothy, which is why Saldano is upset. I thought either the writers didn't care or Saldano just forgot. That was my read. I, I didn't interpret it as being a third Dorothy. Now, the reason I ask this is because in the subscript, it they refer to this as a, a fake Dorothy, right? Which, to me, is a little bit more mindfully saying... Because I think the mystery here is intentional because it's supposed to be confusing when we see the Dorothy in Roger's house. It's not supposed to... I don't think we're supposed to know for sure. Like, ah, oh, yes, this is the android from earlier. I think the the whole idea there is that's supposed to be unclear, which is why he doesn't... She doesn't outright say, like, oh, yes, I'm the android you met earlier today. I think that mystery is intentional with this show. Like, I, I don't think any of these unclear things are, are like, mistakes. But in the subscript, the way Saldano reacts to this Dorothy is that this is a tertiary Dorothy, not not even the the Dorothy that we will be meeting later in uh, Roger's house. 
And and I, I don't think this is ultimately that important because because what we're supposed to understand here is that a, a full body perfect Android replica is possible and and one exists of a Dorothy and we are introduced to one here and then we meet another one later. But I, I you know, we can move past this, but I encourage you to go back to the first episode and watch that first scene in Japanese because there is an implication that this is a yet another fake Dorothy, a faker Dorothy than the Dorothy we will meet. I mean, there's all um, sorts of questions, too, if you read the script very literally. I mean, how does Dorothy know where Roger is after this scene? And furthermore, how does she know Roger's name? Because I'm pretty sure it wasn't mentioned in that first scene. She just shows up and asks for the protection of Roger Smith by name. How does she know where right. Roger is? Not that it matters, but... Well, that's what I'm saying. Is that the, the mystery here is intentional. Like, I, I think it's, it is supposed to be unclear whether or not this is a... Cause the question then would be if if Saldano, if this is the Dorothy android, why would Saldano be upset and claim that this is a fake one, right? Because there yeah. is no real Dorothy, like yeah. that that isn't like a thing that exists. So the the question would be why would Saldano be upset with this? So it suggests that this is a faker Dorothy, like it, it, that would have to be you know. And I know that this isn't ultimately what the plot of this episode is about. But this is a thing that I, I think is is kind of a problem with this dub script a little bit is that because it's dealing with a mystery, I, I think it has a hard time handling some of the terminology of of the mystery, right? Where like I you know I don't want to be like we didn't even think to think about this as an issue. Like why would Saldano not be happy with this if there's only a fake quote unquote Dorothy? But I, I think the script is part of what makes that confusing. Yeah, that's very common in Kanaka scripts, too. Like, I'm rewatching uh, Serial Experiments Lane. And if the show really works if you read the show more metaphorically. But if you, like, literally try to parse the visual storytelling, there are so many different interpretations for what's going on that there's no way to do that with 100% assurance. PMC, I, I feel like, I feel like you, you look, like, lost at sea here a little bit. And, and so, I'm, I'm... okay, so this may be a, a classic Galaxy Brain PMC moment where my brain has fit the script together in a way that makes perfect logical sense to me, but is apparently the way that no one else has interpreted it, which I'm really well, excited to show I actually you. watched it three times trying to do that, and I have my own read. So, my assumption... Now, of course, we, we one of the underlying things here is that no one shares enough info, so everyone misunderstands everyone else. Roger clearly believes that he is negotiating for literally Soldano's daughter. So he expects a human-sized individual, which he initially mistakes for Dorothy 2, the android Dorothy. I'm going to state that my, it is my belief there is only one android Dorothy. My belief is that Soldano has told Roger that his daughter is Dorothy 1, but is an idiot old man who didn't make it clear that Dorothy 1 is a giant Megadeuce that Beck stole when Beck double-crossed him in the deal. And so Soldano says, you idiot, that's an android, not Dorothy 1, not bothering to say that Dorothy 1, of course, is... Unless he says not a human, but that was like my oh. understanding coming away from it, was that Soldano just failed to give the negotiator enough info to understand what Dorothy 1 actually is, and just called it his daughter. That was See, my takeaway. I, I could be that I have ignored parts of the script that make that reading invalid, uh, I would have to go back and check. But that was kind of my understanding that the whole point of the opening scene was that, of course, if someone told you to look for their daughter, you wouldn't assume it was Dorothy won the Megadeuce. So, okay. So it, I, that is an angle I love. I, I'd be like, oh, that's a fucking great and clever way to sort of it, like it, it, like show directly what the problems of being a world without memories, without context would be. But the, the problem is that, that there's this whole gag where... 
uh, Saldano is like driving up frantically, and he's like Dorothy, Dorothy, Dor, and and like mm, right, okay, yeah, th- yeah, yeah. That's like I'm not saying that it's impossible that he'd be doing that for his giant robot, right? Like that's not a sort of thing I would be against the law <laughs> in this sort of show. Um, but I, it feels like the, the for him to be doing that performance just for the like confusion of the 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 like. It feels like too many hats, right? Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. But also, of um, course, too, we learn that Soldano n- never, never had a daughter, and so we're, we're even left to wonder, like, because I mean, and then I think you get to what you guys were saying, which is that there must be plural androids, because how else would he have been thinking to look for someone to greet someone, then to say, "Oh, this is not that person; they just look like that person." I mean, the show even goes out of its way to chide you for doing this research to begin with when Roger says well what about Soldano's I don't care it's not important like this is all it's just right. for the contrivance of the story which I'm fine with that's why I'm like oh it's style over substance that's fine I, and it's not posturing you, itself as something else I'll tell you what though I, and and Steven I, I really I'm, I'm very interested to hear you uh, accuse it of being style over substance because well, I, I completely disagree I'm not I, saying I really like, like... Thema- like uh, you could have like visual substance in like the shots you compose I'm just saying that I don't think this show has anything particularly deep to say about the human condition oh that's what I mean by mm. substantive See, I disagree. I I feel like it's it's already making making statements about w- w- how you would how people act in context free situations and and but aside from that, I will say, watching the scene we're ta- discussing now, when Saldano arrives, he's looking around the warehouse, right, and they're in a giant warehouse, and and so I think PMC is correct. I, I think PMC is is correct to assume that Saldano just didn't give Roger. The, the actual information and that Roger because we, we hear from Roger and when he's talking to Big Ear later that um, he volunteered to go get Dorothy himself um, and that Big Ear calls uh, Roger a knight in shining armor um, and so if, if fucking Saldano came to Roger and was like hi criminals kidnapped my daughter uh, named Dorothy R- Roger is fair to <laughs> <laughs> be like ah uh, yes a, a a giant lobster robot named Dorothy that's who they kidnapped that's who I'll go looking for right now like but now that I'm with that idea in mind of like oh he's a he's a crazy old coot and he didn't give like that that is I think galaxy brain but I do think that it is correct the the reason I got confused is because and and you know this just goes to show maybe it's just the script and it doesn't matter what language it was adapted in um when uh, Saldano sees Dorothy. He refers to Dorothy as Dorothy's dummy, right? That is the language that made me go, oh, this is a third Dorothy. <laughs> because clearly he would refer to a human Dorothy as Dorothy, and he would have some kind of project name for lobster bank robbing robot, right? Yeah, that, <laughs> because... makes, no, that makes no sense. Yeah, it makes and no if sense. We have, if we have three three Dorothys, we we would have an we'd have a proper ellipse because it would be dot dot dot. Yeah, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> um. So, uh, real quick, uh, we we've we've covered Roger, we've covered Dorothy, we've covered the city. I feel like it's you know we we can't. It's it's tough because uh, the the show is very good at giving you a sense of the city with pretty you know, vague backdrops, I would say, you know, you, you get an idea that there are, this is a, a series of domed cities and that 
They're in a very state of decay, but livable decay, it seems like. Um, it definitely looks like what I would describe as a, a Hokuto no Ken looking area, but it feels like there is a enough of an infrastructure that some people seem to live a normal enough, because there's like traffic, right? We see like like people sitting in traffic. We see people going to work. We see in the next episode, we'll see like leisure areas like the the nightingale is like a old-timey like super noir you know uh uh speakeasy is that would that be the term or or yeah, speakeasy would work yeah i think mean, like conjure is the sort of idea um so you know there's there's it, it it works enough in that regard but if you look at it it looks like it's been like like someone took a a snow globe that had been broken apart and shook it really hard, right? Like some buildings are almost like diagonally sticking out of another, and we we see why that might be towards the end of the episode. <laughs> but um, you know, there's a real sense of character to Paradigm City. Maybe it's because of the name. Paradigm City sounds like a place, right? Like there there is a a real sense of like you know in the way that 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 Detroit. New York City, you know, the, the, the Chicago, like these places have a, a a sort of like a real weight because of their Paradigm City. For some reason, effectively works for me on that level. Uh, how did you guys feel about like the character of the city? Oh, I loved it. I love a lot of the the, the visual, the storytelling, and the environmental scenes. Like some of the backdrops are ab- absolutely gorgeous, and it's interesting to see. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab something I was gonna say a little later. The one there was one thing, like one. Sub- I think the show is a great show. Like, I'm really positive on it. Again, I think it just prizes aesthetics over any political or philosophical or thematic concerns, even though I do think it has themes. But one thing is interesting is how, in this world, time would exist. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Einstein's theory of relativity before, if you haven't studied sure. it you know, extensively. But essentially, he was proposing, and I'm no physicist, is that time is relative. And not necessarily in a psychological sense, but in an actual scientific sense. So it's possible to experience time differently. Like, for example, when I'm recording a podcast on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon, might be a bit differently. Like, I might experience that time a bit differently than, I don't know, moments after founding out a loved one passed. Time might then, like, elongate and seem to go on forever, even though only a few seconds might happen when I first hear the news. And it's very interesting how time would pass in this world because you you essentially have no past and with that a world bereft of nostalgia means that you have nothing it's you generally people look to the past for comfort and without that nostalgia without that drive without that background of maybe who you were or who you where you came from it's also going to affect the future and this is kind of represented in the architecture as well Everything is decaying. There's not an emphasis on growth. It's just an emphasis on stagnation, basically trying to make it through the next day and the next day. And then you kind of see this in some reoccurring motifs, um, particularly time. There's a lot of shots of, like, decaying clocks, or then we have the hourglasses in Roger's study as well. And that's one thing I am going to track going forward is how these characters experience and react to time. In this in this city, it seems like everyone is essentially in stasis, and which is causing the environment to decay as well. So that's something I'm looking forward to examining more closely as we continue our watch. Well, Stephen, how would you avoid repeating history if there is no history? How, how do you learn from mistakes if, if there is nothing to learn from? Like, 
the you know that that's I think it's the, the things that you're commenting on like the stagnation and and the parallelism uh, it are all products of that and I think it's something that the show is actively you know aware of like it feels like with every shot it it, it can't it you almost won't let you forget right in a way that you know I don't it's it's a little bit ironic <laughs> um so towards the the end of the episode Roger goes with Dorothy to oh well, actually I, I want to. Because I, I was talking about voice actors, so I want to talk about Dorothy for a sec. First off, Dorothy's design is great. Uh, Dorothy has uh, a, a great combination of, of really sharp and and like leaf design with its uh, the the sort of cute bob of of the the red hair with the pale skin. This is a common archetype for this time period. You know, we were post Evangelion, so it's time for your Ray. You you get your Ray Ayanami. I think also speaking just from the the different stuff that the serial experiment lane guy does, I think he likes this archetype. Yeah, I mean, uh, he came uh, up with the idea with Dor- Dorothy exclusively. It wasn't Sato. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Because again, this is really common. Like your your Ray Ayanami's your your uh, there's a, a similar character in Hari Suzumiya. You know, this is one of those things that that you know I, I almost want to be critical of, but but I love Dorothy. <laughs> like, there's She's a really a real good co- counterpart to Roger. Well, and and like there's there's a real great Cosmos sort of like uh, a straight man quality that that allows for uh, uh, Roger. I almost called him Roger Moore, Roger Smith's uh, uh, particular buffoonery to really be highlighted by. Um, there are moments where. Uh, 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 like um during this this beat where they're investigating the the factory where they find the the big hole not the big o the big hole um there was a hole I guess here it once. is a big o <laughs> um but uh the there's a moment where the 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 gangsters or whatever who work for Beck <laughs> It's just great because they have no history. They must have just like awoke in like the Beck uh uh like henchman warehouse and they're like, Well, I guess I work for you, boss. And then it's just like, you know, I guess I'll rocket launcher this guy, whatever. Um I wanted to comment on the uh that beat where they find Saldano's body and Roger is um uh praying over his body. It's a very um it's one of those things where uh <laughs> I mean, you guys can speak better to this than me. Like, I don't think that's a thing that that happens in in Christendom, right? Like, like, like Christians don't uh, uh, pray over uh, immediately dead people like that, right? Like, I know. I, I mean, I, we could talk about Assassin's Creed. Re- <laughs> oh, true. Re- I guess. <laughs> yeah, Requiem and Pache. It's just yeah. a very Japanese gag. This moment where he's sitting there, like uh, praying for something, and I, and I get what's happening. This is a very James Bond beat, right? Right, it is like, extremely. It, yeah. If, if if Roger Smith had like a one liner afterwards of I don't know, like uh, 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 you know, the, quieter than a church mouse, something like that, <laughs> <laughs> like some reverse version of that. Um, but that the version of that they kind of do is later when Dorothy is like, "Wait, you want me to be a distraction?" And Roger just shoves her out there, like, "Yep, go for it." It's it's you could almost it's it's kind of fun because it's on the edge of making him like shitty, <laughs> you know. To like, if you think about it, if this was like a human girl and he's like, "Go be a distraction," <laughs> like that's fucked up. Um, but she did just previously like establish like I mean I'm ten million pounds like good fucking luck idiot. Um, this scene is great. I I thought this was um, there's a a sort of uh, Tim Burtony 
sort of uh, effect to the the uh, uh when Dorothy's in action there's a sort of like uh I, I don't want to credit it to Tim Burton because this this whole idea has has existed longer than he has but I think he popularized the idea of like your you know pale Victorian young heroine who is is like uh, uh, in, engaging with like action movie type of stuff, but in what we would term it as like traditional feminine clothing or 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 signaling or what have you. Um, the way that the anime gets around this is by by usually making the character like a computer, right? Or or like an outrageous like performer of some kind. Like I'm thinking of you know just off the top of my head, like like you know Ray is able to do some of the amazing stuff she does because of her lack of ability to be feel the fear that that Shinji's feeling like that's not what they're going for in Evangelion but that that's one of the things you could come away with when you're watching it for the first time you know uh Dorothy and uh you know uh the way that she's wearing like a uh what would you describe that as like a fallout four style dress like a with with the color especially and uh, uh the shot that that's really sticking out for me is when um the the factory explodes because of the missiles and she's hanging on by a, a, that pipe and the force of the explosion is like blowing her away right like you you can see it's actually a pretty scary shot in in the way that it's visually communicated there's i'm thinking of a lot of other 90s era anime where this kind of frenetic motion and a character being caught up in it is usually really bad news right like this character is probably dead in a bad way like uh, it reminded me most of like ghost in the shell right like when things are moving this fast in ghost in the shell like it's going bad um but uh you know this of course is the you're a last roger smith moment um leah Sargent, who voices dorothy does a great job uh I I had a hot minute where I was like, is this Relina? Holy shit, is this Relina? It's huh. not Relina, but um, it, there are moments where she sounds a lot like Relina, and I'm just sitting there like Roger Smith, come out here and kill me. <laughs> it's nice um, to meet you. My name is Dorothy. <laughs> Jesus, Dorothy Peacecraft. Um, uh, but the other things that Leah Sargent has done, uh, the most, <laughs> the one I have to mention is that she is the Shion in Zenosaga One and Three. Uh, and of course, that means she is Millie from Trigun. Uh, she's great. She's been around for a long time. She does a uh, like the fact that she is uh, like such a different kind of character from Millie here is, is kind of what I mean. Where I, I, I sort of like I, I, I sort of think someone. I don't know if Stephen J. Bloom was the best choice here. <laughs> like this, this was. I think he's going to grow into it. Maybe I'm, I'm, my my opinion is going to change as we move forward, and I just get used to it. But like, there's a dynamism that is missing. I think in Stephen J. Bloom's performance of Roger Smith. Um, the only other thing I want to shout out at this point, uh, uh, moving away from Dorothy and Leah Sargent. Oh, unless anyone had a note about the the warehouse action scene that I didn't touch on. No, it was well animated though. Like. Like I say this often with some of these shows, the ones that are particularly well animated, but Big O looks great. I would love to see an anime in 2020 look this good. It won't, but it, it looks great. Like, they don't yeah. reuse too many shots. A lot of effort was put into the environmental details and the mech designs and the action scenes. They uh, Sunrise spared no expense. And you could really tell yeah. with se- season two, which I did see some screenshots of there, the money was not as, uh, the well was not as deep. The only other thing I would say uh, before we, we start to wrap up episode one is that I, I didn't like the Dan Dastin performance very much. <laughs> he gave me real general septum vibes, and, and I hate the way he says Megadeus, but oh, that's fine. I, it, I hate the fact that they say Megadeus. 
It's it's. Huh? Is that in the Here's Japanese? What I'll say. No, no, of course not. They say Mega Deus, but the the. I mean, this is what I'll say. I'm gonna take a there Mega are, Deuce. I mean. a, a lot. There are people who say Deuce when they pronounce the Greek word Deus. They, there are people who say it. At, I I. It is not correct, but like I I don't know. It, this is one of those things where it's a losing battle with pronunciation, right? Like. Uh, I have listened to multiple Xenogears podcasts, and all of them have a different pronunciation for Saiten. <laughs> all of them. And it doesn't matter, right? Because everyone knows who you're talking about. But anyway, towards the end of the episode, uh, there is an iconic, iconic series of shots where uh, Norman calls Roger Smith, and he says, uh, Master, there is a giant robot downtown. What are you going to do about it? This is that shot that they used in the Toonami Giant Robot promo. Uh, I I feel like I could draw it myself. I'm so familiar with these frames. Um, but this is where we, we get to the real Sentai of it all, the real tokusatsu of it all, as he, he uses his watch to summon the Big O uh, in a sequence that is incredible. Uh, we see the Big O rising from beneath the city as it cracks a building in half in a way that it looks like this building has been cracked in half before. Uh, or or some kind of damage has occurred that, that leaves the Big O room to do this again. Um, or at least to make it worse. <laughs> that, that's the suggestion I got from the way that the building is cracked in half the way it is. It looks like something else cracked it in half like this. Um, we are introduced to the Big O, uh, and it's great. <laughs> the Big O rules. <laughs> it is my friend. Everything about the Big O is, I don't know, incredible. I think the the sheer physicality of it, the way that it hisses, it has sort of this, um, you know, being in the noir environment, I feel like it pulls up on some of the, the steampunk stuff, but it doesn't quite, I feel like steampunk is often very explicit. Like you have to see gears and things and and the Big O just sort of picks up, I think, on some of that in terms of things like the giant piston arms and, and things like that, but also the 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 interface, the cockpit with the, the flip switches, the sort of typewriter that's just hanging out in there. Love it. Which is, love, love it. it, love it. And, um, I mean, the, the idea of, like, joysticks that you move back and forth, I feel like that's common, but the, the physicality of really just being able to, like, almost do, like, a big, wide hook, but, but you're controlling the robot... Uh, it's just really wonderful. I, I think it's just really uh, uh, a great image uh, to show how Roger controls uh, the Big O. It's particularly toyetic, too, just considering its background, like a rock'em sock'em robot as it leans back and then goes right into the punch, which is cool. I, I love everything about the designs. They're very, mainly because of the sense of scale, they're very godlike, very sublime. See- I, I I agree with you. I think the the way that the uh, I think it's an astute observation the PMC that that there is just enough uh, verisimilitude in the way that it is mechanically like characterized that it, it feels like a thing that exists reasonably in the setting. Like I I know that sounds insane, and especially when we've been basically going like, eh, don't ask questions, don't fucking worry about it. It's not that important right now. But it really does. I think that's a really good point. It looks just enough like a thing that people built. Right? I mean, that's the thing about mystery, right? Is that it has to has to be plausible. You know, if, if it's too absurd, you know, it's not going to be worth it. But like, oh, you know, this 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 could be something, right? You have to you have to one ask questions for I think it for it to be a mystery, right? And and you know, uh, for I agree, Stephen Hero, insofar as I would want this toy, I want it right now. Yeah, I would take the a big O toy right now, but 
what I would I would say is the elements that that really the, that you're describing as toyetic, what they're really doing effectively that those giant pistons is creating a sense of weight. Yeah. Right. Because the the and and you know when we're talking about mechs and especially mechs of this size, the the challenge uh, and and this is a challenge entirely a presentation is conveying the scope and the weight of of these giant machines. You can characterize them with design and aesthetic, right? Like famously, you know, uh, uh, there was a, a bit of a kerfuffle where you know we there is a, a a conversation happening in uh, various places about uh, statues and who's being represented in statues, and there was a jokey joke post going around about putting up a Gundam instead. And you know, of course, the people who are concerned with the text of Gundam were like, "No, of course not." <laughs> Like, obviously not, but, um, you know, the, uh, the thing about that is that the, there is a disconnect that's happening there, right? People aren't necessarily connecting that, oh, you know, even though this, this robot, this gun is designed to look like the good guy gun, that doesn't make it a good guy. Like, like, but with the big O, um, because of the, the different kind of show this is, um, and because it's a mystery, what this is was built for, or why it, it was, you know, put together, or why it exists here in the city, or why Roger has it, all that matters now is a is that it's a car that Roger drives in that he's going to use to stop these bank robbers, right? Like they have effectively by showing us in the beginning, oh, Roger's got a suitcase, and then in the next time Roger jumps into action, oh, Roger's got a car, and then the next time Roger jumps into action, oh, Roger's got the big O. You know, um, and one of the notes I wanted to touch on, I, I kind of hinted at it earlier, is that in the sub, uh, when Roger Smith calls the big O, the, the action terms to activate it are used in English. So he says showtime in English mm. and he says action in English. Um, and, you know, there's a we've talked about this before. There's a mystique to using the in- English terms instead of the same term in Japanese. This is, for example, why in Final Fantasy VI, the main character is named Tina instead of Terra. Right, like there is a mystique to naming that, like uh, in Japan, naming that character Tina in a way that that you know when when I say Tina, I think of like Bob's Burgers Tina. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Not necessarily like a fantasy hero. Like uh, obviously, there's there's like elasticity here, but you you both see what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to a lot of J-pop songs, they'll just seg into English for stylistic reasons or mystique, right? But, you know, the, the, the point that I'm, you know, this is one of those things that's difficult about adaptation, right? Because, like, the, the cleanest way that they could do the equivalent in English would be for him to use, like, uh, like French, right? <laughs> for if he went, like, like big O, Alonzi, do you know what I mean? Like, it, and even then, that's not even getting across, really, what, that has a different thing that it's getting across than what they're doing here, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um the the kinetic force of because you you see the big o you see those big fucking piston arms and you're like please give piston please 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 show me show me the punch give me the biggest punch apply directly to the forehead yeah it really is like you see those and you're like i'm i demand there's something it is that thing that that is mocked in about mecha stuff where like if if all you've got is a hammer everything looks like a nail but i see the big o and i'm like punch give give punch <laughs> please now 
And, um, and that sense of physicality that you mentioned is so well captured in like the shot by shot composition too. It's not just they vary the types of shots just to show the physical scale. Like it could be a gigantic, you know, robot mecha foot just hitting, smashing the like gravel, and you see like the repercussions of that. Really smart, and they always representing them like how big these things would be next to buildings, but varying the oh, shots in order to like the one shot through the triangle window mm. every time. So good, oh, incredible. It's it is perfect. It, 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 it like immediately. Oh man, there's so much like intelligence in the way that the show is composed in these first two episodes. Um, but yeah, uh, before because we're basically the episode ends when uh the big punch happens, the biggest punch. Uh, this is a pretty standard structure for how so um Sentai and Tokusatsu shows are typically pretty highly structured because they're they're meant for kids, right? And so when you sit down as a child and you watch it, you're supposed to know what you're in for. Um, so there's a point in the battle with the giant enemy where either uh, the they're felled by the lowest level attack or the lowest level attack does nothing to them, right? That's the structure. And because this is the first episode, we're not going to show off all the fun things that the Big O can do, right? But we are going to give you... We, of course, are going to give you the first thing you thought of. <laughs> we're not going to show you piston arms and then not have him piston something. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> like... Um, this, you know, there's no special technique here, right? This is a big punch. <laughs> um, this is the sort of thing that, that would happen in, in another type of uh, uh, tokusatsu show. So, like, you know, every one of these characters would have a special technique of some kind, whether that's Ultraman and, and the way that he holds up his arms and he shoots out an Ultra Beam or Ultra Blades or, you know, that's Power Rangers and they summon the big sword or whatever and the big sword is the... but like. Having said that, like, when I say, like, the final attack beats things, like, ultimately at the end of the episode, like, that conjures a specific image in your head, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's the sort of thing they're going for here with just this sort of, like, and especially with this sort of surprise ending of the damage that, that Roger is inflicting upon Dorothy 1 carrying over into Dorothy 2. There's a really interesting sort of, like, emotional mix that's happening here where, you know on one hand as an audience you're like fuck yes the big o it look at it go fucking a fucking punch that robot um but there's something weird going on with dorothy there's an incredible shot at the start of this action scene where she is looking up at dorothy one and we see reflected in uh roger's car this very spooky phantom image of of dorothy's shadow with the eyes sort of colored in it's fucking great I love it because it, it doesn't tell you what's happening per se, but it lets you know that there is a presence that is superseding Dorothy here. Oh, man, it's it's very, very good shit. Um, even though it's confusing, <laughs> it's not really clear what's happening, but it, it was uh, enough visual storytelling that I was like, yes. Uh, but then uh, Dan, Dustin, and Dorothy are crushed by the bigger Dorothy, the end of episode one. The end. <laughs> yeah, the end of the big O. <laughs> And that's when Cartoon um, Network came in and brought back us back for a second episode. Yeah, season two. Let's go. <laughs> um, but uh, before before that, we move on to the season or uh, fuck. Before we move on season to episode two, yeah. And uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna rescue this bit with my my hip chain and and drag in this White Castle in from the horizon. Do you mind if we uh, we sojourn in real quick? Let's do it.
Yeah, we're, I can say we're in it here. Uh, we, had, we, we are, had, in we had here. our sliders. We are delicious yeah. sliders. And we are exactly. back. We, we, we bought um, big O sides sliders. So they're actually cars that we're in right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pusey just shakes his head. Just the horror of that, of a giant burger you know the size of a car. I, I, this, can, this can be in it, too. I don't care. I want to tell you folks right now that um, I'm... PMC Trilogy is a good son, and I've been doing grocery orders for my parents so they don't have to go to the grocery store right now in the pandemic, and they have been asking me constantly to get slider rolls, and having to discover where slider rolls are at my local grocery store has been a giant pain in my ass, (laughs) and that's all I have to say on the matter. Let's talk about the big O. (laughs) Yeah, we can talk about the big O. Um, I will say I agree, and then otherwise talk about the big O. Um, but yes, there is this episode two opens with a, a shot of a lone shoe in a ruined cityscape, and and immediately I, I thought of Pacific Rim. Uh, you know, uh, there famously there's the, the scene in Pacific Rim where we see uh, uh, is it? Gosh, what is her name? Mako? Is that I her think name? So. I forget all I the names so. from that. It's movie. been a while. Yeah, um, but I like her lot, back. But... Oh, I love Pacific Rim. I, I I would love to do an episode about Pacific Rim on our show, but. Uh, there's a scene where she's wandering around the city and she's just kind of clutching a shoe and she's crying and miserable and it's a striking scene. I think even people who don't like the movie are are eager to say like, yes, this was good. Like this is a clearly artful sort of mech scene in this in this big dumb movie. Um, and it, immediately, that's what I was kind of thinking of. You know, this kind of setup, uh, this cliffhanger is very uh, 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 comic booky. Uh, I, there's a, one of my favorite of all cliffhangers is from a, uh, a, uh, 70s X-Men comic during the Dark Phoenix saga where, um, a character has a psychic battle with Scott Summers in his mind and defeats Scott Summers. And the last page is like, Scott Summers has died. And then the first page of the next, pa- <laughs> next comic is like, oh no, he's fine. <laughs> it's just like that sort of shit is incredible like you can't you, there are people who get mad right and and like it's not an unfair reaction to just be like you can't keep doing this shit this is that thing that people get mad you know not to invoke voyager uh steven hero but this is what people get mad about on voyager especially because the, the whole conceit of that show is supposed to be like ah oh, they're trapped far away from any usable resources how many yet, photon like, torpedoes do they have let me count them <laughs> yeah, well like and you know obviously like on one hand, it's like, oh well, only a, only a fucking loser would care about that shit. But on the other hand, like that's the conceit of the show. You shouldn't have made that the conceit, you big dummies. Yeah, so. I'll save that for the beginning of America because I have thoughts. I uh, I just finished season one, but it's comforting trash. I, I just yeah. I just like it. the background noise of the engine room is fine. The the oh, doctor yeah, no, no. kicks ass, and I have some other positive things, but I'll touch on that later. I'm not even sitting here being like fuck Voyager. That's not even where I, I'm just saying that. When it comes to those sorts of conceits, there are mm. sometimes people who have big problems with stuff like that. Like, you know, not not respecting, like, oh, how are they going to handle this problem next week? And the fact that, you know, you have to structure creating a show and, and creating that kind of structure, like a, a, a what's the term, not a serialized structure, is a different project than a non-serialized show. And you can't really pivot, yeah. you know, which is kind of what they were seeking to do in Voyager. Um but in any case, the big O, the cliffhanger is immediately undone when we reveal. I, I made a joke about it before we began the the, uh, the break. Um, but that the one of the big O's functions is that it's like uh, a hip it can can shoot out like a missile and is attached to him like a like a big chain. 
Um, it looks good for rescuing <laughs> Dan Dustin and Dorothy from falling giant robots, but otherwise I'm not really sure what it's for. I, I guess stabilizing? Like, my... Probably, you know, yeah. I mean, anchors. They do what anchors do, right? Assuming that the Big O has a giant laser, which, of course, why would it have a giant laser? What an absurd thing for me to say. Uh, it could use these chains possibly to, like like PMC was saying, anchor itself to like other larger... Like, mm-hmm. like buildings around him, but that, that's the only other thing I can think of. I, I did think it was delightful, though. Like, this is a cool giant robot thing. Yeah. Uh, what, did you guys have thoughts about it, or was it just me being insane? <laughs> I mean, equally delightful. I mean, you know me. I love grappling hooks. So, like, this is basically a grappling hook for the big O. Oh. So, like, of course it owns. That's, Whoa. you know. That's fucking a good point, actually. Um, God, what, a, what, what kind of environment would the big O be grappling around? Man, anyway... I guess to the um, top of the domes if it wanted to. I mean, yeah. it's, at some point, Big O will have so severely degraded like the the physical infrastructure of and foundation of the entire city that it's probably just going to start falling apart and resembling like one of the collapsing folding cities from Inception, like one of those parts of Inception. Yeah, for that, real. You know that we're not that far away. <laughs> like we, how? I mean, this is the thing. Like we, I guess I could, I could bring up this. I talked before about how visually, you know, the way the shots are and everything that makes the city seem so much larger uh, than the amount of people who live there. Uh, but I also think that there's sort of two points here that maybe we can touch upon at the beginning of episode two that drive that home. Uh, one of those points being that despite constantly like ripping through roads and buildings every time it enters and exits the area, uh, that the city still functions, that people still get along, I guess. Right. You know, and, and so I don't, I, and I don't think that means that people are repairing the roads and buildings, to be clear. It doesn't seem like there's a big, big, uh, big work crew out there who just follows Big O around fixing you know, all You this. know what they could do? They could defund the police and use that money to repair their failing infrastructure. That's Absolutely. a good point. That's strong. I, I like that. Well, and then speaking of the police, who are clearly not effective at all, despite being very aware of the, the, the ongoing threats of the Mega Deus, uh, they, the, police are un- the police are unwilling to go to the rail system <laughs> in the city. Yeah, they just which- won't go. Which fits, which fits in with the show. It, it owns as a part of the show because it gets into the idea of the memory and the mystery and that the fact that some of the powers that be are unwilling to stare into the face of this thing. Uh, and we don't know why they're unwilling, but clearly it's an almost sort of um, like animalistic fear. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like it instills within you a, a fight or flight instinct and they are always mashing flight when it comes to... Uh, dealing with with the railroad, but Roger, for whatever reason, you know Roger's our cool character, so he's too cool to be to be driven away from the railroad. So he used the railroad to his advantage. Uh, I think this is something we come back to later as a plot point, even within season one. But it was definitely interesting to me that the the vastness of the city is underscored both by the um, the, the our sort of uh, freely destructive behavior as well as just massive parts of the underground that the police who you would think who you would think are law and order but are never actually law and order anywhere uh you know <laughs> being unwilling to to deal with what seems pretty relevant to the city yeah it's interesting yeah. that you should bring that up too because the, the, i want to i want to touch upon what i mean about like prizing aesthetics over meaning so just bear with me for a moment but we're talking about film no war no war no film no <laughs> no you know often they operate in a very 
and I'm, I'm cribbing from some academics here, because while I do enjoy film noir, I'm not like an expert on it, but often they operate in a very anti-authoritarian tradition. So if you're looking at a Philip Marlowe novel, for example, I would say that's more overtly political than The Big O. It is, you know, I'm just going to look at my notes for a second here, but like this classic archetype uh, critics have referred to as like a fugitive outsider. A lot of times they're ex-cops or they're a citizen who takes law into their own hands, maybe becomes a detective in order to follow through with justice because the institutional powers are incapable or too corrupt to follow that through. Uh, I'm quoting a critic here, but in the mid-1940s in Hollywood, a series of films validated not the gangster or organized crime, but the ordinary citizen, both working and middle class, who either through the conditions of his or her everyday life or arbitrarily, seemingly by chance, ran afoul of the law. And you do see this tension in Big O, like, uh, Roger really doesn't like Dustin, but he also works kind of closely with him at times as well. They do play off each other. And, like, this is what I mean by, I think, the the Big O is more concerned with the superficial trappings of film noir, like, than a deep-seated institutional commentary, and which I'm fine with. That's what I mean, like, to give a little bit more background, because I do agree with Ignis that there is a lot of thought in the visual storytelling, especially in mood and ambiance and atmosphere. I, did, I just want to make my point clear that I don't think the show is in any way thoughtless. I actually think in some, degree, in some ways it is quite literary. I think that the show has prominent symbols and motifs that hopefully we'll see recur throughout the show. I just don't think it's an incredibly... I don't think it's commenting on the human condition, is what all I'm saying. Yeah, no, and I wasn't sitting here being like, "What fucking Stephen Hero? Why are you blasting Big O in our fucking first two episodes?" No, because I want to say, like, I am uh, incredibly positive on the Big O. It's one out of everything we've watched so far. It's I'm getting the most enjoyment. Just like, yes, it's Big O time. I'm going to sit down and watch Big O. I'm, I just, it's it's a very fun show, and I don't know where it's going to go from here, but it's definitely in my upper echelon of shows we've watched so far. Well, anyway, moving on from Stephen Hero's unjust blasting of Big O, uh, <laughs> I I I did want to piggyback a little bit off of um, the comments about Dustin because uh, I think there's there's something interesting going on with the dynamic between Dan and Roger. Uh, there is um, a really interesting. I know we're jumping back to episode one here, but the start of it is showing that Dan is is safe anyway, and there's a bit of an interaction between Roger and Dan and the military police. There's uh, in the sub. I can't remember if he says it in the dub, but in the sub, he actually invokes the phrase "law and order," so that's cool. <laughs> when he sends the uh, the tanks and shit after the big O, uh, he's like, "Show him the meaning of law and order." And I was like, "Yeah, you you fucking want him to, right?" That's yeah, all, there's all something cops want to do too. Um, but in any case. Uh, there's a, when we first meet Dan and, and he's in the, I don't know, study waiting for, uh, uh, Roger to show up. He's, he's looking at the, the photos of, of Roger and the crew and, and he doesn't, he looks wistful, right? And like, obviously he doesn't remember the specifics of what's going on there, but he seems to think that he should feel positively about these photos. And, and I think what, what's happening in these, in this moment, I, I'm sorry to return here to, to this scene, but I think this is the scene that's most concerned with like the quality that having no memory leaves people, right? Like this is the scene that's really telling you how people are functioning without and relating to one another without memory, right? Which is to say that there's some sort of quality that seems to be, endemic still like there's some sort of uh to quote data uh ineffable quality to to uh a memory that that isn't lost by whatever happened in the event which is i'm, I'm very glad that we have adopted that language for the memory loss event uh do not think about the event 
but like it, there is a a relationship here that both of them understand but are not privy to, which is like really fascinating, right? Because it, it's almost like they're performing. You know, um, PMC, you invoked Zenigata, right? Who is an archetypal character in in an archetypal show. You know, Lupin the Third, where the characters are less specifically drawn out as human beings and are more, you know, larger than life, like superhero figures, but within a smaller scale than when I say superhero, right? Like these people don't have powers. They're just exceptional individuals. Um, And with, and Zenigata is in many ways, like the greatest of all cops, but next to Lupin, he looks like a fucking clown, (laughs) right? And, and that's, that's almost the point there, right? There's multiple episodes in Lupin the third where Zenigata will be matched up with like other, policemen or detectives or something like on purpose they have him team up with like a fake sherlock holmes guy and it shows how zenigata is not full of shit he's a really smart dude it's just that lupon and crew are incredible they're the top of the tops right and and i feel like that is a fair comparison with dustin i get the impression from dustin that this is a dude who is a bootlicker, but it, for the most part is like he, meaning like the most well-meaning possible, like something that could only exist in fiction, right? Where he's, he's following the letter of the law, but doesn't have any ideological, like, like st- standing in up maintaining it, right? He legitimately thinks just doing, you know, this, his duty for the military police or whatever is, is its own reward. Right. Um, I get the impression that he likes, Roger, right? Like it, it doesn't come across in the dub very much because there, there's a, a sort of aggressive delivery to like, yeah, you, you fuck this one up. You shouldn't stick your nose into this bullshit. Like that, there, the way that the the English performer is doing it is is very aggressive, and and the way that it, it, it's delivered in the sub is is a little bit more like, it's a little bit more like roasting in the way that like. Like if I was a PI and <laughs> and like like look okay so imagine me Ignis Maddox I'm I'm a negotiator and and I, I call you Stephen Hero and I'm like ah I had to use my 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 rocket suitcase to, to jettison the money and those idiots shot at the suitcase until all the money dumped out mm. but I don't care it wasn't my money you know like I think you'd be like wow you you, you fucked that one up <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. not not in a, a way that's like you know uh uh aggressive but it seems like that's the the vibe we were supposed to get right that that he is like officer krupke you know and and is you know not officer krupke is actually a bad example from west side story but like more like uh fuck uh j jonah jameson is a good example Mm -hmm. of in the spider-man raimi movies where uh he is concerned about spider-man as a vigilante figure but when confronted by Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin, doesn't give Peter Parker up, right? Which is subtle characterization on his part. We know that he's a shithead, right? We know definitively. He's maybe, like, iconically the most beloved shithead in the Marvel Universe, right? Um, but this there, it, that simple scene tells us that there's, like, a there's a sincere and, and well, you know, like noble element to him right that beyond the bullshit that he's he projects there's he will not give up one of his employees right mm. um and i get that feeling from D- D- dayston i keep pronouncing his name differently dan dustin i think is his name yeah but when, um, you, when you read it it's datson d-a-t-s-u-n yeah. we had that other problem with some other show where just the pronunciation did not match the actual 
letters on the screen. I can't remember. Yeah, that's fine. I think it's it's uh, Dor- Dorlian. It was Relina's dad. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost oh, certain. Dorlian. I also feel like we had that. We had that two weeks ago with with Ellis and Harris. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. That was fucking. Anyway. Anyway. Um, well, yeah. You know, so- I was, was going to say another character that I I thought I think a lot about with this particular with Dustin is um, I think a lot about Bullock from Batman the Animated Series. Yes. Uh, totally. Some of that energy. In that, okay, and that's actually speaking a little bit more to what Stephen Hero was speaking of, because Bullock is um, is antagonistic flavor, right? Where he's he is ostensibly on the the good side because he's a cop, right? In in the context of Batman the Animated Series, um, but he is the antagonistic. He's antagonistic towards Batman, our hero, who we know represents a a moral righteousness, right? Beyond societal norms or whatever fuck in in the context of batman the animated series and and here we can kind of assume the same things about roger or the show asks us to assume those things because you know to speak towards the destruction of the city and stuff like that we see that dustin dastin dutson uh dotson we got dotson here (laughs) see no one cares dustin dots (laughs) the ice cream of the future i'm glad ignis was on my wavelength (laughs) <laughs> I didn't know if I threw out a Ju- Jurassic Park reference, uh, it would land on deaf ears. No, 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 not here. Uh, we are we are men of culture. <laughs> um, the uh, the the thing that struck me in in this particular moment where he's like, ah, you know, don't cause any uh, uh, you know public property damage is like, ah, yes, good job, cops. <laughs> the thing you're concerned about. <laughs> Definitely not stopping this lobster robot. I mean, this is that that almost you know, and, and this is a, a, an obvious thing to speak to because Godzilla is is an enormous inspiration for this work. But this is that classic. Um, oh, why are they even bothering with conventional weapons? <laughs> you know, like uh, you see this giant lobster robot coming, and you're and you're firing your shots from where you're at. Pew, pew. And and at what point do you turn to Dutz, D- Dastin <laughs> and you're like, I don't think this. <laughs> I don't think this is effective, boss. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe we should get. Uh, do you want us to ram it or like, you know, this doesn't seem to be working. Like, I, maybe the working environment in Japanese military police forces are, are are different. And you know, if this was like an American Godzilla movie, I could see this very same scene happen. I, I'm almost certain Godzilla 2014 has a scene like this where some American soldiers yeah. confront one of the Mutos. Yeah. Um, but even there, you can see the idea being like an emotional reaction of like, holy shit, a, a big thing. I have a gun. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and here, this is, I, I felt a little bit more like they were going through the motions of like, look how powerless the police are. Um, uh, did we... Do we do we have any comments on Dorothy One? By the way, I feel I feel like we neglected the poor girl. She's 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 a big presence in these two episodes, and and I and I feel like because of the tsunami um, promos that I have a very strong idea of of Dorothy One in my mind, especially in a shot in this episode where we see Dorothy One walking down the cityscape with with its battle wound and its eyes glowing red, a really stark image that I'm almost certain they use for the Toonami prom- uh, promos a lot. Um, I, I I like this design. What, what do you guys think? I, I like think Dorothy 1 is a great example also of how good they are with sound effects in this. Mm-hmm. And like, especially when the, like when the, the gold face mask glows at the end of the first episode when it's trying to get the plates out of the bank the first time. You get some really, really fun sound effects. Um, but besides that, even I, you know, I do think that the... 
the sort of crab thing, you know, again, sharp angles, stuff like that. But the face mask for me is the most striking thing. Yeah, it's such a stock kaiju like archetype that uh, it's not offensive in any way. It, it it just fits the bill. It's very perfunctory in that regard. That's not a criticism. I've just seen lobster creatures before that climb out of the sea, and that some Godzilla motherfucker has to take down. Yeah, no, and, and I I would I would agree with that, and sort of like I would add maybe like the the tiniest splash of positive <laughs> spices on top of that. I, I really dig the uh, just the extra inch of design that they put on this thing. So I agree with you, Stephen Hero. This is a classic archetype or, or trope or type when it comes to like a an enemy design. Mm-hmm. But there's just enough creativity in its tendrils and the mm. way that the tendrils can be weaponized into you know, something I wanted to speak on is like how interesting it is to move from a show or two properties that are concerned with like normal I I you know objects as like stark weighty iconic uh, you know uh sorts of symbols like Gurren Lagan with the drill and and Promare with fire mm-hmm. um and here we have <laughs> it's just a drill ass weapon you know what i mean like when when the the when Dorothy 2 and uh, or i'm sorry Dorothy 1 piloted by Beck uh, you know starts to use the drill weapon i was like oh man it's crazy to see a drill and feel nothing <laughs> Like, to just be like, oh, this is just another weapon of the... I was really struck with the way that, that it, you know, we're not talking about Big O now, we're talking about Gurren Lagan, but how Gurren Lagan effectively took something as mundane as this and, and made it into <laughs> a weighty symbol. Mm. But anyway, um, the other, I, you know, to speak to uh, Dorothy One's design, uh, the the way that its face is very clearly like, punch this. <laughs> Is 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 great because not only is the design itself so great, but the reveal of the underneath of the face is is one of the best moments of the episode. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, I almost said on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the nose. <laughs> um, but the the way that um, uh, we we see people imposed onto mechs when they're not piloting them is often very telling. You know, and and to have Dorothy two in that position, I think is is not an accident. But you know, uh, we see here at the end of this scene that the the big O, <laughs> it rises from the ground and it, it just fucking goes back <laughs> when it's done. I really appreciated how it was just like, well, I must re- reverse return to my people, <laughs> and, and then, like just stomps the ground and falls through. You know, as PMC mentioned, into the the labyrinth, the labyrinthine train station or uh, train tracks underneath. Um, I pushed back against Stephen Hero's toyetic comment in the first episode. But this is a toy-ass toy, this thing that's carrying the big O around. Uh, this is the sort of thing that you would see Power Ranger Zords, you know, riding around in. Like, in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, there was a thing called the uh, Titanosaurus uh, that, that you could buy for your Megazord to ride around in. Uh, it was a big Brachiosaur-type thing. Uh, I, I'm mostly uh, uh, going... Uh, talking about it more just because i'm looking at both of you reacting and i'm like uh-oh i'm, I'm at sea <laughs> do you either of you remember what i'm talking about or not really? yeah i had that thing no i had okay. it too yeah oh okay <laughs> <laughs> it's guilt it's guilt what you're seeing is that we're trying to like look away furtively <laughs> i'm sitting here like oh man no one knows what i'm talking about no, anyway. i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> um but uh this was a, a design i loved it, it's a little bit more this crosses the line where Earlier we were talking about the Big O as as an object that could conceivably exist in this setting, like 
someone made it for a reason in this setting. And, and like, for that same reason, you could claim the same about this thing, but this thing looks a little bit more like a toy <laughs> to me. And, and it's not bad. It just crosses the line for me a little bit, where mm-hmm. um, until this point, I, I feel like the Big O effectively accomplishes creating almost a magical realism in its, in its atmosphere and its storytelling uh, because of the things that you have to take for granted. And, and things like this technology is essentially magical, right? It might as well be a power star that the fucking Big O is riding in on, like Kirby, you know? Um, and it, this sort of begins to aim a little bit more towards, like, a, a concrete, explainable, scientific reality behind it. Um, but as characters continue to, you know, something that we learn is that the, the, the military is apparently not able to create their own mega deuses because only certain people know even how to make them. Like Miguel Soldano, apparently, you know, we I don't know how well we've explained this, but his whole connection to these series of events is that he was funding multiple projects, right? One of the projects being Dorothy 1 and Dorothy 2. Dorothy 1, it seems like, was not created for robbing banks or or the intention was not to rob banks that is it seems like what miguel is is saying before he dies he's like i didn't intend dorothy to be used this way i think um i mean it doesn't look like <laughs> i mean a big lobster claws with tentacles like it just seems like you could use that to to rob banks but we see it in the episode it has like claws that are perfectly sized for grabbing cash <laughs> and so i was like okay what else was this for then <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, the, the, with Dorothy too, it it felt a little bit more like, you know, like I can impose like, uh, Wainwright being like, okay, I'll make you, I'll help you make a mega deus for, you know, shits and giggles, but we have to use some of this money to make an Android daughter for myself. And, and Miguel was like, cool, 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 cool. Um, and this is all related to Miguel and, and his memory fragment, we have to assume, that, that the big year told us about in episode one and two, right? Um, uh, but, you know, the, the episodes aren't necessarily... I think it's fair to say that episode one and two is, is more about uh, introducing us to the world and mystery of, of Paradigm City and the Big O than it is about necessarily answering the individual questions of the individual episodes like there are it reminds me a lot (laughs) it reminds me a lot of twin peaks where with twin peaks it it is a little bit more about the emotional journey than it is the concrete answers it it is not necessarily a story where you want it to explain specifically why there are supernatural things happening but rather to say what could these supernatural things be and or or mean to the characters in a, in a concrete way, and I feel like the Big O is sort of similar in that regard, in and the way that we are maybe not meant to be hung up on the 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 plot, so to speak, of, of where where these things are coming from, why these things are happening, how you know uh, a a man with a factory and a memory fragment is is valuable to Beck, and why Beck would even want money. It, it doesn't seem like he he needs money. <laughs> It seems like he's good on that, um, but this is the sort of stuff that is is less important than getting us introduced to Paradigm City. I think that's that's kind of where I'm coming away from these episodes. But I also maybe we have, if, if nothing else, established that 
PMC has the greatest <laughs> understanding of, of the big O of the three of us, I think. Um, when you said uh, that earlier, you know, though, I can't help but think of, I have never seen an episode of Lost, but I you know of the critical reception to Lost. And, you know, people really vibe with Lost in the first, like, three seasons. But when you start answering those questions, they are not as satisfactory as your imagination would lead you to believe. And that is almost always the case with uh, literature media like this. See, I for me, I feel like the the key is is setting expectations, right? Like, I I think the thing that's really tough about creating mystery is that it, it can be difficult to package and sell mystery because a lot of people, when when you're talking about consuming a a, a narrative, they're they're looking for the point, right? Which is either a payoff or a moral or or something like that. With with something like Twin Peaks. David Lynch's intention, according to him, was something like using the the core of that sort of life event to expand outward, right? And that his whole thing is is undone if you answer the question of that life event, because the answer is not supposed to be the point, right? But I don't know how you sell that to an audience without explicitly saying it. It's it's different with a novel, right? Because with a novel, there are, are a million perspectives that you can you can elucidate. There's a million different things that you can choose to provide a point of view on that you know it, it is revealed by the end of the novel, one way or the other. The the whole product will probably be, if it's a good novel, in one novel. Even if it doesn't, even if it's a series, like there will be an overall point to it. But with individual episodes of a TV show, it's packaged in a different way, where you're you're selling a like the the promise of an eventual payoff with a serialized TV show most times. And so when 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 it comes to like something like Twin Peaks answering questions or Lost answering questions, both of those shows unfortunately, you know, one way or the other position themselves and you could blame this on the networks or what have you as shows about their mystery and answering that mystery. And you know, if if there wasn't a plan to answer that mystery, then that's like that's a kind of different problem right like that that's there's a way that you can like you know i don't want to be like there's a way you could do this exactly right and all shows should follow this plan but like there are shows with 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 better like not shows there are stories that that have examples of how this can work right like Famously, uh, Babylon 5 is, is a really long-term story that, that was more or less planned out from the beginning to end. And, like, there are pluses and minuses to this. Like, you know, uh, I think uh, Game of Thrones came into the conversation about the, the foibles of having a planned ending and, and just doing that planned ending instead of getting there or letting the story get there. Like, I, I think that there could be a lot of conflating between... Uh, uh, stories not having satisfactory answers after they've been built up to like answering questions posed by narratives at all being completely negative. <laughs> like that's really what I want to push up against. I think, is the I idea think it's a case-by-case case basis, personally. No, totally. Yeah, I, I, I think that's ultimately true regardless. Like, I just think that... Like I could bring up a ton of examples. I, I don't like Guns of the Patriots much at all. And when Kojima starts connecting all those dots and answering all those questions, I am left completely unsatisfied. But like for example, talking about Star Trek Voyager, if I didn't get the answer at the end of seven fucking seasons, I would have been pretty pissed. It, it, it's a case by case basis, and it depends also on what questions you answer and what questions you let linger. But often, like I, I like to, in my literature I consume, I like to exist in a very liminal space with with not all the answers or ending on a very. It's up to your determination what happens. I usually think that's more artful, more subtle, and more impactful. Not that that necessarily right. applies to Big Other, but 
I would just rather exist in this mood than have this mood disruptive by quantitative details. I I think that ultimately, and I'm like I haven't because I'm not I'm not someone who's like created something for public uh, uh, consumption in the same way. Like uh, like what I would like to think is ultimately I would I would try to have an answer and if i didn't like the answer at least like not get in the way of the beat right Mm -hmm. that i think that's ultimately what you want to do is like if if like sitting in that so a good example for me of not having the answer is the end of the thing right Mm. so at the end of the thing mccready and keith david are alone i don't remember keith david's character name i'm sorry um are, are left alone at the end of the thing and keith david remarks like uh, uh, I don't think we're going to make it. And and McCready responds by saying, maybe we shouldn't. And and the question that's left in the air there is like, are they the thing? Or is neither of them thing? Is Keith David thing? And the, the movie doesn't have an answer, and that's good and fine. And it, it works to, like, I almost don't want to describe it as good because it, 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 like, suggests that, like, Oh, the alternative would be bad. Like knowing for sure, like if if fucking McCready turned and uh, uh, Keith David was thingified and and killed him at the end, and then it just panned up. Like I don't know if that's worse necessarily, but like that ambiguity works for that movie because of that beat of like loneliness and and hopelessness and like the 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 atmosphere of a, a general dread that is unliftable, right? Like a storm, mm-hmm. it, it works there. But in um, what's an example of a time where I I like I like having an answer more? Ooh, well, it also depends. Gosh. Are all the questions very answered very artificially in a very neat box, or only some questions answered, but others are left to linger? That's also another question. Think. Of. I mean, I could nuke this podcast from orbit and uh, uh, invoke Mass Effect Three right now. Uh, Mass Effect Three is a game that gives you every answer you could possibly want, and all of them are bad <laughs> all of them are trash um, and this is and this is where you know there's definitely like i don't know i think we're it is fair to leave it at the the uh it really depends on the context right like there's a way that you can accomplish this is and i think the thing that we agree upon right is that is that fair to say yeah i say so yep the main thing i, I wanted to address here with with that conversation about the value of, of mystery and ambiguity is that you you know who doesn't who don't really like mystery and ambiguity who, who for whom that creates a lot of uh, uh feelings of anxiety and and tension my students but go the, on I, I was yeah i was going to say children children don't like that <laughs> yeah i always i often tell that to my students as well because they want very pat answers to every question that a novel presents and life's tough and life sometimes doesn't give you answers tied in very neat bows but also, it's fun and enjoyable to parse that out yourself and come to your own conclusions without the author having to rub your nose in it all the time. Right. Um, you, you know, I do think this touches... I, I said this at the end of the history episode, but it also bears worth repeating if we're going to bring up this talk about children, is that, that kids today probably watching TV show on Netflix, and they probably get to watch all the episodes... When I watched this as a kid, the mystery was acceptable because I knew I probably was never going to be able to watch all the episodes because they're all broadcast TV, and I'm not going to catch every one of them. Mm. Yeah, I, I, super good point. Not something that occurred to me. Like that, That's something that I did think about, which is like part of the, the appeal of this show is that because it's a, a mystery at heart, you could catch an individual episode randomly on Adult Swim at 11.30 p.m. and probably still be able to engage with it and not feel like I've, I'm missing story here because it's all weird. <laughs> Um, anyway, 
when uh, we return to like the action of the plot of this episode, which is the big ear revealing the existence of the Nightingale Bar, uh, Dorothy has gone missing after the action of the battle. Uh, but we meet Dorothy here at the Nightingale. Uh, uh, this is a pretty classic sort of, uh, uh, you know, to the point that where even Star Trek has played on this cliche of like, you know, the first thing you do in a D and D campaign is you you go to the tavern, right? And and you you figure out you, you you will usually meet your important characters at at some kind of meeting place where people congregate. Um, there's a lot of fun visual gags here. Uh, the bouncer is an enormous man. Uh, there is a um, I guess a showgirl who walks by. Uh, that that Roger. This is one of the things that is consistent about Roger's characterization is that like he he really wants to project like a collected cool person, but he is he is clearly a big dweeb around women in a way that is like kind of endearing to me, but I think is also kind of. <laughs> it's dorky, right? In a, in a way that's like forced almost, but it, I kind of appreciate it. Um, uh, there is um, uh, at this moment at the Nightingale is when Roger Smith runs into uh, Dorothy and Doctor Wiley. What's his name? Wainwright. Something Wainwright. Yeah, it's Wainwright, isn't it? Isn't it just yeah. Wainwright? Wainwright? Or do we have a name for it? Yeah, I think it's just Wainwright. I thought Ignis right. was going to do a Mega Man 8-bit. That's what I was waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we must recover all the energy of Mega Man. Um, but <laughs> uh, there's, I don't remember what Dr. Wily sounds like. No, you're but pretty where close. where is Dr. Wily? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> uh, Mega Man 8 is great. Um uh, I loved the. Uh, there's this thing that that can happen with anime, uh, especially in this this sort of earlier era, where characters can. This is when characters really started to wear like contemporary clothes. So you would get characters who get to change into more interesting outfits. Like I'm thinking, this really started to happen in the sort of 90s Sailor Moon or Yu Hakusho era where Usagi has lots of fun, horrible 90s, and especially Mamoru, uh, 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 Darian for you dub people, he he dresses like a horrible dad for his entire life. <laughs> like, super high pant khakis and shit, um, and like pink polos. <laughs> Just the worst, dorkiest man. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the thing that's interesting, or the reason I bring that up is because we see Dorothy in a, a kind of red, like, I don't know how you describe this, like a, like a, Oh man, I should have asked my partner because I know there's probably a term for this sort of dress. But she's dressed for a night on the town with Grandpa, um, and uh, there is some ambiguity about. This is one of those things. This is why I touched on the script. Uh, there's ambiguity about whether it is supposed to come off as weird that Roger accuses this Dorothy of being an android in this moment. The way that that Wainwright reacts. Where he he's sort of like I I can see that you're an uncouth young man or whatever he says. Um, uh, Roger Smith is a louse. Uh, it, it almost it's the sort of line you would write if you were trying to like sprinkle in the mystery still of what's going on with Dorothy, right? There's there's ambiguous language here where Roger's like, well, what are, why what are you doing out here if you're a fucking android? And, and Wayne writes like, well, that's fucking rude. Let's let's go, Dorothy. Uh, this beat was weird. <laughs> I don't know how to interpret like because they're in, and maybe in episodes three and four this will be more clear. But th- there's just weird dancing around this Dorothy's identity that you know becomes clear later when she mimics. You know they they invoke the the sort of over 
the arm move that we saw Dorothy 1 try to do to the big O, we see Dorothy 2 use on one of Beck's henchmen here. Um, and so it's clear that this is Android Dorothy, but like, I, I was curious, like, did, did either of you bump up against that, that moment there, or is that just some classic Ignis? <laughs> like, I mean, my understanding is that what Wainwright is doing at the club is trying to recreate a night on the town with his real, like, the memories of his real actual daughter or granddaughter and like that's the oh, whole sure. point is is just like when roger's like this is an android and he's like no shut the fuck up this is not an android <laughs> like that's the whole the, the point is that he's like no this is my granddaughter and that's what i'm doing right now i'm pretending and you are not going to say otherwise get out of my club right i i so th- that part like from the the plot perspective like okay. and the, especially this beat the, the maybe you know, i wasn't the, catching on what you were saying then no 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 so uh, basically what i was asking was it, it like here in this moment where we're continuing, I'm basically continuing my line of thought about <laughs> Pepe Sylvia <laughs> and and the third faker Dorothy, um, because the the I I thought the purpose of the ambiguity of language here was a little bit unclear. I, I think you're right that ultimately he is trying to um, submerge himself in the fantasy of the Nightingale. Right. That that is the whole point of this this setup is that he we're to surmise that the existence of Dorothy 2 is to uh, recreate some kind of experience he had with his biological daughter of, or something like that, as referenced by the myth of the Nightingale being about an emperor who loved a mechanical bird, right? Um, I was hoping that when Dorothy was on stage there that she was doing stand-up, <laughs> and the piano player was was just doing riffs. Like, <laughs> What's the deal with airplane food? I I spent a little bit of time just seeing if there was like a like a sort of almost like an inverse or converse of diegetic to describe this scene because the first time I watched it, I was just like very convulsed by having the very relaxed piano track against what is clearly like several different musical acts in series you know the, yeah. the the first singer as well as whatever dorothy's performance is and i can understand as a reason but like it's still just very bothersome to be like to, to see a performance and to know that the music you're hearing is clearly definitely not the music like the performance that you're seeing um i don't know if there's a term for that i i took a brief look for it and there wasn't like any you know spin-off of like anti-diegetic or, or something like that that I, I could find but um just something that stuck out to me i think you know if i off the top i'm again we're we're, we're none of us we're all clowns here but the the, the term that i just off the top of my head is like dissonance right like what you're experiencing there is like a purposeful sort of like 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 a dream we're watching right where like you know what's supposed to be occurring here and what you're supposed to be hearing, but but your experience is completely different. Um, you could argue if I was going to put on my my rose colored art teacher glasses that that there is a sort of like Roger is separate from all this, right? Like he is he is an onlooker, and so like he doesn't get to experience it in the same way that Dorothy and Wainwright do. And so we, the audience, are getting the experience that Roger is right, where he's outside of all of this. Um, but that's just me, you know, <laughs> I think probably they just didn't want to have like three or four separate musical performances, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a practical aspect to it as well, yeah. Oh, but I I completely agree. I, I think that's, you, you picked up on something like really interesting that they did here in this episode. <laughs> like, I completely agree uh, with that, that sort of like, man, what what's happening right now? I don't like this. 
<laughs> what did what did Roger do to that bouncer? Like, why is he just slumped in the corner? Is that man he, dead? Yeah, I that is a great question. I assume Roger has his own um, hashtag Taser Comer that, that um, Beck's got. Uh, we see later uh, when when man Beck, <laughs> I have I have lots of questions about Beck's whole setup because like he's okay so. We we see Beck is disrupting the the performance at the Nightingale. He's got he's got Roger and and uh, Mr. Wainwright dead to rights. You know Roger's got a uh, a Luger to his back or what looks like a fucking Luger, and uh, uh, we can assume that the the grunt has the same thing in the other pocket. Dorothy dispatches with hers and doesn't seem to, you know, uh, I guess doesn't seem like is concerned with Wainwright. Right, like she she calls out to him, calls him father. Uh, and begins to approach to try and dispatch his hostage taker, but doesn't doesn't appear to be hearing the obvious sort of cries of like, "Hang on, don't do that yet." We we could maybe not get your grandfather killed. Um, and you can you know with a human character, you you could make like you know there's a fallibility to a human character that where you could understand like, "Oh, okay, uh, she fucked up." You know what I mean? She made a mistake. Uh, but I was curious uh, what you guys thought. Why? Why you think she didn't stop? Like what? What she? You think was going through her her computer brain here? Do you think you know? Like for me, the, the reason I ask is because I, I, when you hear an android, your 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 brain goes to like this is an analytical character. This is a character who's going to have access to information that that people wouldn't necessarily have access to. Inf- like you know, or would process it in a way that people don't. Or you know, you, you don't. Exactly, uh, impose the same sort of fallibilities that you would a, a human character of the same age. So when when someone is is giving a pretty logical, like I, I you know command so to speak of like stop or the your the person you're trying to protect will die, you know, and they ignore that. If it was a human, I'd be like you know like I said like oh they're nervous or oh they're they're you know the the energy of the uh, situation overwhelmed them. But that that that's probably not happening with Dorothy like you could obviously there's a meta textual explanation of like this needs to be what happens for a dramatic reason right like we need to be in a situation where Dorothy is vulnerable and thus can be taken by Beck for whatever reason um but I was curious like what you know you could make a determination based off of the way that she treats Saldano right she's very cold and cruel when Saldano dies right Mm -hmm. Her, her opinion of him is like oh he just he just literally put me together. Not really my dad. Uh, based off of blueprints, he's just a dying old man or whatever. Um, but clearly she feels things about stuff. There are multiple scenes where we can infer she is concerned about a thing and or where she chooses not to answer, something like that. So what, what happened? What, are, what do you guys think about this moment? I mean, I think it's always a sign that when it comes to designing, you know, computers and AI, we desi- those, oftentimes our biases slip in and are expressed within those computers as well. And I think this is that kind of situation. I think this is why why Dorothy responds to Wainwright and not Soldano is that she's probably been programmed that way, right? You know, the, if the goal was to simulate his daughter, somehow, it's probably not perfect. You know, it's probably not, like, obviously. And even to, maybe to some extent, I think they... The, Roger says, you know, Wainwright probably knows it, but, you know, he still recreates the magic for a night. And so I think this is just the case where, where Dorothy is probably programmed to express those, uh, you know, that, that inclination, which plays out in, you know, in the dramatic beat as well. So it's, you know, u- utility for the plot. But uh, but I, I think it does fit in with what we know about Dorothy and, and her design. Yeah, I largely agree. I think that's a good read. 
Yeah, that's super good read. I, I actually one of the things I forgot to take into account is the the idea that uh, uh, Wainwright was imposing, like Roger said, impose uh, a memory onto her, and there, that is the the difference of of weight there. Um, Beck kidnaps Dorothy with a tome uh, taser comer uh, hashtag taser comer, uh, <laughs> and that is the that at that point uh, is that where there's a very cool shot where uh roger is standing alone in a in a dark sort of area and the spotlight is just on him and before we cut away he's calling the big o is that when that happens i think so i think so yeah, yeah. i think so i'm just trying to to determine because like you know there's while these episodes aren't super like a lot of things don't necessarily happen in each individual episode there's a lot of visual information imparted and so i'm trying to trying to determine if i had forgotten anything at this point let's see because there's a final action scene where the the big o confronts dorothy one again and dorothy one is somehow still functioning even without the, whatever important component that <laughs> got pissed into the fuck out of her <laughs> in the previous encounter uh, and what we eventually learn is through battle uh that dorothy two has been replaced into the the brain almost of dorothy one Right, uh, and this is a a parallel kind of of the situation that we were seeing before, where something about Dorothy one was imposed onto Dorothy two on the ground, and now we're seeing kind of the opposite, where Beck is imposing himself onto Dorothy two, which is how he's controlling Dorothy one. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, is it not implied that Beck was controlling Dorothy one in the first, or is he because? Well, I, I do think that is the case. Okay. I'm not saying right. that. I, I, like, I, that's what I thought too. I just wasn't. I wasn't 100 percent confident about that. But I, like, they show the because they show the yellow van at the end of episode or at the beginning of episode two, I think. So like, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just agreeing. I, I yeah, was just yeah. saying. I, I'm fairly certain the idea is that um, Beck is controlling Dorothy one initially through the the. The the VR headset that we see him mm. in for this episode appears to be his replacement for um, uh, Roger Smith's control module, right? Like, Roger Smith's whole deal looks like a much more effective... Like, his looks like a workaround, and Roger Smith's looks like how it was designed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and I think the, the, the function that Dorothy is serving here is, like, a... a again, a workaround for something uh, that was required... Uh, that is required, but... Now that it's missing, this will suffice, right? And I mean, like, this is, you know, <laughs> there is an argument for this being, like, normal science fiction. Like, oh, she's a significant enough, like, science object, and so she could just replace another <laughs> significant science object that we don't understand. Um, but the, you know, the the imagery here of two... So what we have here are two creations of men who are whose identities are imposed onto them uh used for selfish purposes both times right um you you can you know there's there is a a innocence to what Wainwright is trying to accomplish here but ultimately you know the 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 Pinocchio he's making is not for it to have her to have her own life right like this is to recreate something that he wants, and then in the same way, you know, we don't know what <laughs> Saldano was doing with um, uh, Dorothy One necessarily. Why he he was interested in in getting Dorothy One constructed, other than getting paid. Uh, but 
you know, there whatever reason that could be, it wasn't for its own sake, right? It was created to be a tool, right? In the same way that even though we are meant to relate to Dorothy as like a person, it, it's essentially a tool to uh, facilitate this sort of feeling of nostalgia, like a like a like a um, you know that that's the point of the wind up key imagery, right? It, like a wind up doll, right? Um, I'm not saying this necessarily to be like cancel Wainwright. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that the, the, that was the, the thought that occurred to me when I saw this image, right. Of her intertwined into this other like tool. And it felt to me when, when Roger is, is an unchaining her from this and saying like, you can be yourself. It, what he's saying is, is like, you know, you can be a person. You don't have to be the, the wind up doll for, for, uh, Wainwright. Like this is not. I'm not saying that this was the point of these two episodes, but th- this was an idea that occurred to me as I saw this image. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I th- other than that, was, there is a final beat, obviously, when, when uh, uh, Roger is triumphant and he defeats Beck and his men, and uh, there's a, a couple good comic beats of uh, the big O finding Beck's van. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the image of them opening the, the van doors and the big O's eyes are there and they close the doors. A fucking classic. I love that gag. Um, and, and we see that, uh, Roger more or less takes Dorothy home. Um, and, and, uh, we, there's a final comic beat where we sort of, uh, underline that Roger's sense of fashion. Uh, I'm not sure if there's, there's, you know, uh, an interesting sort of like, I, I took the, all of this for granted as far as just like, oh, this is just, you know, when it comes to men's fashion, dark colors, it's just what you're going to get more, more likely than not. Um, but the way that this is underlined, I, I wondered if this was a less, you know, taken for granted element as far as like men's fashion goes in Paradigm City, maybe like it, it was still a good beat. I'm glad that Robo Dorothy is like your your taste is shit. <laughs> <laughs> but man, I, I really enjoyed these two episodes. I, there was there was a lot for me to chew on here. I, I know I was I was going off a bit towards the end here, but uh, did you guys have final thoughts? Yeah, like uh, like I said before, my baseline mood is melancholy, so that's the shows I tend to gravitate to, and I just like living in this world and ex- experiencing that mood. I love that the credit song is basically from the same school as I Am The Wind from Symphony of the Night, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It definitely has, um, when and Disney was in its renaissance, they would always produce a radio version of like the biggest song from the soundtrack, and that's the, the feeling I get from it is like the radio version of the biggest song from the soundtrack. What's especially great about that, it's, it's usually the love song. So it's usually like, like, can you feel the love tonight? Or um, uh, I can show you the world or whatever. And, and those are duets, right? In, in the way that this song here is a duet. And those are usually in the perspective of the main characters. And so it's very interesting for Dorothy to be like, like, beep boop. And then for the ending, sometimes I feel so far away. It's just very, it's very stark. I enjoy it a lot. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm excited. I, I really, I, <laughs> this, this recording has created a very interesting dynamic for me, Ignis, because I feel like we went from, uh, TTGL, which was a, the, the Ignis and Steven Hero Defense Squad show, to, to now I feel like I've switched teams and I'm now in the PMC Brigade uh, against the, the Steven Hero. Uh, uh, I'm mostly kidding. I, I know, I really Steven, like that you show. were up on the show. I'm just saying I, I think it prizes aesthetics over, you know, just like, for example, the Dorothy bit about personhood. It really doesn't have anything, like, incredibly poignant to say about personhood. It just uses that as a trapping, I think. Yeah. 
I I think that's fair. I I think the the uh, uh, you know hopefully in the next what do we got eleven episodes left? Uh, yes. Yeah, hopefully in the next eleven we're gonna see more of that played out, either by characterization or you know data style, like returning to this concept of like maybe she adopts a cat, maybe maybe she learns to play an instrument. I don't know. I I. I I think we might be done touching on Dorothy's backstory. I can't really remember, I, but I, you know, I if we're really going to dive into Dorothy plurality theory, it's not something I'm necessarily prepared for. <laughs> oh, oh, PMC, do, do you mean bigger Dorothy bigger theory? Bigger Dorothy theory. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that um, Big O goes out of its way to already show us bigger Dorothy yeah. is true. Bigger, bigger Dorothy is here. <laughs> Um, Daddy. But... <laughs> Sorry, I didn't expect that. <laughs> so with, with that in mind, uh, I'm curious to see more mysteries unfold in Paradigm City. I, I, I don't even remember the structure of this show, so I'm excited to see where 3 and 4 take us. Yeah. The, the only, like, I, I, I was defending the mystery. I want to live in the mystery. The only thing I would like to have answer are the characters ageless. That's, the, like, the meat I wanted, because it would help me interpret this world a little better. That's all. Ah, oh, you don't want to see. To me, that ambiguity. Uh, but I'm with you. That that's very. Your mileage may vary, right? Like everyone's going to have a different answer to where that line is. You know. Yeah. Like, was anyone born after the culminating event 40 years ago? Or that's what I need to know. Because that's my interpretation based on Wainwright. Is Wainwright has aged these last 40 years? But and I, and that and that theorizing is fun. That's just the one little bit I want. Because I, because I do want to argue for the mystery. I don't want most of these answers, these questions answered. That's just the one I might want answered. But I'm sure that's it, the monkey's paw, and I'll be regretting that episode's down the line. (laughs) PFC just nods. (laughs) The the only sentence in my brain right now is, Trace Kushnada is 24 years old, and that's all I just keep saying to myself like a mantra. (laughs) It's like the, um, there's just like a ghost of Trace Kushnada over PFC's shoulder right now. (laughs) And he's talking about history being a series of accumulated events. What Um, what I'm saying is, I want to be the loser. (laughs) watches that kid oh, around doesn't he have a speech right, that scene? we can't we can't go there we'll get there soon enough <laughs> we will we will all right so now that we're talking about gundam wing i i, I was ignis maddox steven hero pmc trilogy and we'll catch you next time when we'll learn someone's age i don't know we'll come to term with it somehow <laughs> we'll come to term Be <laughs> <laughs>